Sorry, guys. The um, this week's Empire podcast has been delayed indefinitely. So you um, might as well just stop listening. Sorry about that. Bye. Right, they've gone. Let's do the podcast. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. No bombastic on the Empire Podcast intro this week. I'm trying something new. I'm adding a little bit of spice into the mix after eight years. Always keep them guessing. That's what I say. Because uh, I'd hate to get in the same old dull routine where I'm joined by the same old colleagues of such lethal cunning every single week ad infinitum on and on and on until I hate the fucking sight of their stupid faces. Bit harsh. <laughs> Bit harsh. Anyway, I'm joined this week. Oh, look, it's Helen O'Hara. Hey, Helen, how's it going? I'm I'm well, thank you. The spice must flow after all, Chris. So I, for one, applaud this new spice, whatever it is. It- is that a Star Wars reference? Let's say yes. Let's go with that. Uh, we're also joined, of course, by James Dyer, who was also here, which is nice, I guess. Hello, Christopher. Have you dropped the On the Empire podcast this week? Because I do On the Pilot TV podcast this week so much better. So much better than I do. Yeah. No, I just I don't think it works. I don't think that sort of thing works on a podcast. Hint, hint. <laughs> Jimbo, it's taken me I'm eight years to come it. up with it. Whenever I started doing it, I think we were very much in a sort of broadcast mode, and I think it works on a TV show or something like that, or a fitty blocky sode, but I don't think it necessarily works on a podcast. Also, I always intended it to go over a music bed, and mm. we never did do that because our theme song stops. And it just kind yes. of goes bangly bang and stops, and then... So it's me just being bombastic over nothing and but that's the telling story people of your life, that's, really, that's, this, yeah, that's <laughs> yes. this whole podcast, isn't it? And then telling people <laughs> what's coming up, but they already know what's coming up because they've seen the podcast thing and so they know that Patrick Stewart's on this week's podcast. So I don't need to tell them that Patrick Stewart's on this week's podcast. Okay. okay, counterpoint, counterpoint. What if, what if they don't know Patrick Stewart's on the podcast because this podcast automatically loaded into their feed, as podcasts tend to do, mm-hmm. and they've just been listening to, you know, another other podcast, let's say, for example, the Pilot TV podcast, and then it's automatically gone into Why Empire. they want to listen to the Pilot TV yeah, it doesn't podcast? Seem- it's a hypothetical. It's yeah, a it's hypothetical. Impossible for me off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're talking Keith's particular podcast feed is what we're talking about here. So Keith oh, is yes, listening yeah, to Pilot. It's a lovely, it's a Monday. So let's see what's refreshed in my <laughs> podcast feed. Oh, oh, look at that. It's another episode of the delightful Pilot TV podcast. Oh, that will really help me with my viewing for the week. Yes, Chris. Okay. So, right, fine. And then it's automatically, he's finished Pilot, he's upset, Pilot's oh, finished, it's highlight of his week, I'm, he's devastated. I'm distraught, bereft. <laughs> but because he wants more of me in his ears, he's downloaded the Empire podcast Where as well. Where can and I, I get my James Dyer fix? <laughs> none of Where this sounds he? convincing. Like, just none of it. <laughs> it's automatically teed up. He doesn't know what's in it. He doesn't know what uh, we're reviewing. He doesn't know who the guest is. And he's waiting for you to say, in a poor impersonation of me on the Pilot TV podcast, on the Pilot TV the podcast, podcast this week. This week. <laughs> Do it like that. Do it like that every time. <sighs> Jesus Christ. All right. Okay. All right. I'm re- so Chris, Chris, what is what is on the podcast this week? Because I don't know. On like, the Empire podcast this week, <laughs> you get a little bit of Star Trek. You get a little bit of X-Men. Baby, you got a peace stew going. Yes, we talked to Life with Music star Patrick Stewart, <laughs> plus usual movie news and nonsense on the movie podcast that hasn't thought of a bit for this bit. Ah, there we go. Hello, Pod. It's I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome it. to the Empire Podcast. Uh, this week, I'm delighted to be joined by three colleagues of such lethal cunning. Helen O'Hara is here. How are you, Helen? Still here. <laughs> okay. James Dyer is also here, which is nice, I guess. 
Hi, Chris. Hi, James. How are you doing? I'm good. <laughs> it's good to see I don't just walk decisions back really, really quickly. <laughs> and uh, we're also joined, of course, in the rotating fourth chair this week by the the wonderful Ben Travis. How are you, Ben? I'm good. I'm still kind of hung up on that phrase you, that you used before, old faces. Excuse me? Ben is correct. Old faces yes. and Ben. Yes, old faces and Ben, and Ben who has resplendent, so close to being a flock of seagulls hairstyle uh, at the moment because you haven't been able to get it cut in lockdown. I haven't been able to get mine cut in lockdown. I'm, I'm covering up my lock with um, with a baseball cap. Helen's hair is always long. James, you know, <laughs> James is my, my, <laughs> hair is, too, I guess. my hair was left in the 90s, sadly. So. <laughs> James's, James's hair is here too, which is nice, I guess. I like it, Helen. I like it. Uh, and Ben, Ben, it's it's incredible. It's incredible. It we should is, take a screenshot so we can show the people. I, I took a picture of it the other day when it was freshly washed and it was just huge. It was, it's, I have quite wavy hair. It was in big sort of bouffant 80s waves. Um, so maybe I'm bringing that style back for at least the next week or so until I can uh, get out to a hairdresser's. But we'll see. Listen, I'm glad that you're all okay and everyone's fine and dandy. Let's segue smoothly into the podcast itself now after that long introduction. And uh, we're going to start with the facts section, which this week mm-hmm. has a name. The beloved facts section, beloved of everybody who, who partakes in it. Uh, it has a name. It has a name, folks. Uh, let me see. Someone sent in a couple of suggestions for names. Uh, Chris Hewitt's a fact hunt. A fact, uh, Chris Hewitt's a fact hunt. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Hewitt's fact hunt. Well, that just—I love this name. That just seems... I endorse this name, and suddenly I've become a fan of this segment. So. <laughs> that just seems uh, well. That just seems offensive. Uh, and that was sent in by a James C. Dyer. <laughs> uh, I've lost the. Uh, someone sent in loads and loads and loads of names, and I've lost the uh, the, the tweet. Um, but I'm back on Twitter now. People will be glad to know. People will be relieved. A nation breathes Thrilled. sigh of relief. Uh, so James Drury uh, suggests a factnophobia. That's pretty I good. I do have factophobia because every time this mm. segment comes up, I go, oh shit, I don't have a fact, and I have five minutes to find one. <sighs> Jesus Christ. All right, Ben, let's start with you. <laughs> okay, well, I can also give you a tie-in name for the segment based on my fact, and I'm going to go for the name Cloud Factless, <laughs> because okay, yeah. my, uh, my fact is loosely based on the fact that I did my sort of unofficial annual rewatch of Cloud Atlas last week. It's just okay, a film cool. I keep on coming back to. I love that film. Um, and it's sort of designed to get every better and sort of weirder every time you watch it and it it does so uh, if, if your fact is tom hanks plays loads of people in that then <laughs> i'm gonna have to disqualify you did you know they all play different roles um no it's uh it's mine is a short and simple fact and that is that uh oh we basically have natalie portman to thank for cloud atlas and specifically the way that cloud atlas came to be on the big screen uh which is that Natalie Portman was reading Cloud Atlas. Uh, why did I say it like that? Cloud Atlas. Uh, Natalie Portman was reading Cloud so, Atlas. Well, the key, uh, yeah, Natalie Portman was reading Cloud Atlas. I was, I was intrigued to see that uh, James Dyer is also a fan of the of the Wachowskis and the uh, Oeuvre. It, it also sounds a bit like one of Jim Broadbent's characters in Cloud Atlas. Oh yeah. The uh, the sort of uh, old guy who gets locked in the retirement home in that whole segment. And then makes loads of creepy dummies. 
Oh, no, wait, that's just Jim Broadbent. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah, he has his, like, cupboard full of weird art dummies. <laughs> yes. should save that for another fact week. Yes, we um, should. <laughs> so, yes, my fact is that Natalie Portman is, is responsible for the Cloud Atlas film that we got because she was reading Cloud Atlas when she was working on V for Vendetta, famously produced and written by the Wachowskis. She also was still reading it because it's a hefty book on the set of Paris Je Thème when she was starring in a segment directed by Tom Tikwa. Tom Tikwa? Tikwa? Never know how to say his name. But he Tickver. is the Tickver. Tickver. There we go. He what's is it, the What's Tikwa to pee with? No, Chris. No, you've tried this before and I keep Sp- saying Spies no. like us. Spies like us. Uh, so he is the third director of Cloud Atlas. He is famous for being one of the only feature films with three credited, equal-weighted co-directors. And uh, yeah, it was Natalie Portman who introduced them all to that book. And then all the directors got together and sort of plotted the whole thing out and how they would do it together. So uh, that is my slightly underwhelming fact for this week. That's that Natalie incredible. Portman is to blame for Cloud Atlas. She's not to blame. Good. Good. No, I will not accept Cloud Atlas slander. I will flat mm-hmm. out not accept it. What, mm. what an incredible fact, Ben. You're sure to win with that. Um, it, hey, it's, like, it's honestly, the true true. <laughs> My fact is the true true. It cannot be denied. The true-true. Are all your facts Tom Hanks related? Because weren't you on a couple of weeks ago and you did a Wilson fact? I did. I did. And I also had a, a sub fact on that that I didn't get around to, to talking about, which was that uh-huh. that week we reviewed Greyhound and in both Greyhound and Castaway, those films start with Tom Hanks being given a Christmas gift by a loved one, but then through the rest of the film, they're unsure if they will ever see them again. Is that a fact, Ben, or is that just a coincidence? I'm not sure. In Cloud Atlas, there are no coincidences, Chris. They are souls (laughs) bound across time. (laughs) There are no coincidences in Greyhound. Um, Sidebar, before we get into James and Helen's facts, which I'm sure will will knock everyone's socks off. A quick sidebar. Have you ever seen someone, a movie star, reading a book on a movie set. Uh, I bring this up because I have seen it happen twice. Twice, folks. Uh, Once, as I've said in this podcast a couple of times, I saw Richard Armitage reading The Hobbit in his trailer when I interviewed him on set of Captain America, the first Avenger, and I said to him, are you in The Hobbit? And he went, um... (laughs) (laughs) And it turned out he was, so Scoop McKenzie wins again. Second time was on the set of X-Men Desi Future Past when I saw Jennifer Lawrence for It Is She reading East of Eden, I want to say, because she was going to do that with Gary Ross. Mm. Uh, who was her director in the first Hunger Games movie. And I don't know what's happened with that, but uh, that's happened twice. Have you guys ever done that in your travels? Yes, James Franco on set of (gasps) Your Highness, and he was reading something highbrow, but I don't remember what. Sorry. Brilliant story, Helen. Uh, James. Glad I could help. (laughs) Was it the book from Superbad with all the dick drawings in? (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Jimbo, have you seen anything? I have never, to the best of my knowledge, seen anyone reading a book on set. No, sorry. Ben? No, I haven't either. I imagine James Dyer is the one reading books while visiting sets. <laughs> yeah. 100%. In the corner reading yeah, Dune. Yeah. Yeah. While, while I'm supposed to be watching them filming. I'm yeah. Like, yeah, whatever, Paul Atreides has just ridden a sandworm. Yeah, this is why um, they didn't let him on set of Dune, because he would have gone, excuse me, um, <laughs> I think you'll find the line is this. <laughs> In fairness, that would have been not a problem. It, oh, yeah, okay. I think so. No reason. End, end sidebar. Okay. okay. Uh, ben, speaking of bars, Ben has set the bar pretty low. James, can you fault over it with your fact? 
I'll do my best. I will do my best. So my my fact is more of a gift, I should say, and that is if you ever wanted a celebrity friend, I have one for you. I have I will give our listeners the ability to call Mark Hamill in 1977 for did you know that Mark Hamill's phone number appears in Star Wars? So what? it's absolutely true. So you will recall in the original Star Wars there is a part where Han and Leia and Luke and Chewie are in a trash compactor, about to get a lot thinner. We're gonna be exactly that. Exactly that. Now, when they shut it all down, when he's speaking to 3PO on the comlink, he tells them where they are and he reels out a sequence of numbers. That sequence of numbers was Mark Hamill's phone number. Whoa. Now, yeah, absolutely true. Now, what's kind of funny about this is they had a massive fight about it as well. So during that scene, so they had a whole thing, I'm sure you guys know, that Hamill and, and, and Ford were ad-libbing a lot of stuff in that film, mainly to torment George Lucas. Uh, and there's a point where like Hamill said that he he had to um, he had to reel off the system numbers. It didn't really matter what it was. They were, on, they were in the script. And he was like, fuck it, I'm going to put in my phone number because he wanted to have his phone number immortalized in film. So he, he was ready to do it, and he told Harrison he was going to do it. But they changed the blocking of that scene on the day of shooting. So so that when they actually did it, he wasn't near the door. So that line was given to Harrison Ford. So Harrison did it, and instead of doing Mark Hamill's phone number, Harrison Ford said his phone number instead. And Hamill was like, dude, seriously, that was my thing. Why are you doing that? And they had a back-and-forth bickering match about this particular thing. And in the end, Ford was like, oh, for God's sake, fine. So then they reshot it, and Ford uh, did it with Hamill's phone number and was like, literally, are you happy now, you big baby? And they had a big old strop about it. But obviously, they ended up redoing it with Hamill saying it anyway. So in the finished film, it is Hamill, and it is Hamill saying his own phone number and not Ford saying either his number or Hamill's phone number. But uh, it it is 3263827, but it doesn't include an area code, so you'd probably have to guess that part. If we get thrown back in time to somewhere where Mark Hamill lives in 1977, we can call him. That's really you helpful, can. James. Thanks you so can. much. Absolutely. I am here to serve. How long have you known this? 3263827. Well, how long have I known this? Since 1977, Chris. I don't know why you're asking me that. Have you known it since it uh, was revealed three days ago? Yes. <laughs> yes, that is how long I've known it. Mark Hamill did an interview quite recently where he talked about the famous fight between him and Harrison. I can see you furiously Googling this as I was telling you, because you were like, I do not know this fact. Uh, yes, it was revealed a few days ago in an interview, but uh, it was amazing. something I didn't know. But the reason it's stuck in my head is there are very few sort of Star Wars facts that you know haven't been doing the round for a very long time, and most people know this stuff. And I was like, oh, this is something genuinely new that I didn't know, uh, which I thought was quite cool. That's incredible. That is absolutely incredible. 3263827. Yep. We've got to imagine this an LA area code. What we should do for the rest of the podcast is just randomly dial LA area codes <laughs> and see. It might still be Mark Hamill's number and we can get him on the it podcast. Might. I'm pretty I sure I still it have isn't. the same number I've had for years, but, uh, you know, who knows? I've had the same mobile phone number since uh, 2001. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it wasn't a mobile phone. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Because even there, even I've, had, I've had the same phone number for 19 yeah. years, is what I'm saying. Unless it so, was the size of a car. But yeah, yeah it would have been his home phone number. So we just have to work out where did Mark Hamill live? In 1977. All right, tell us in the next, his house next week's fact section. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I want detailed breakdown of all Mark <laughs> Hamill's movements in 1977. Uh, not bowel movements, obviously. We're not that sort of podcast. Helen. Hi. I don't really have one fact. I have a sort of mini compilation of facts that will probably still not be of interest, but that's, that's what James's I got, job. so fuck it. <laughs> yeah. um, this is about the very first film that was ever shot in Hollywood. Oh, um, God. 
That's true. <laughs> Here we go again. Cast She's your back. Mind back. Nostalgia McGinty returns. To 1913. <laughs> Um, I I'm not kidding. <laughs> 1913. I can probably cast my mind back to 13 minutes past seven last night. Never mind the year 1913. Well, I'm also, sorry. That's I'm, where we are. So the Titanic's gone down, but World War One hasn't started yet. All right. I know exactly so. what I was doing. I was waiting for Liverpool team news. Anyway, carry on, Helen. Okay. So, um, the <laughs> so yes. So there was a successful Broadway play called The Squaw Man, and um, it was up for film adaptation because it was clear that films were this big new thing. And Samuel Goldwyn, the producer, um, famous for his Goldwynisms, was uh, trying to get into the filmmaking business. Yes, Chris, you're doing the sort of miming of someone with a cigar. I hope, and yes. that's correct. That's him. So uh, he was trying. He was trying to get into the film business because he figured the way to make money was actually to make your own films, not just to exhibit other people's. And so he bought the rights to this play, and he went to a guy called William DeMille, and said, "Look, I want you to make this film for me." And William was like, "Fuck off! Films are never going to amount to anything." And then when he Helen swears, and- <laughs> it's like hearing your grandparents swear. It's, it's just, it's not right. Anyway, carry on. And then a couple of days later, he goes, he calls back, and he goes, "You know what? My little brother Cecil might be up for it." <laughs> Not kidding. Not kidding. So Cecil B. DeMille uh-huh. signs up. His very first directing job was uh-huh. directing this film, The Squaw Man. He went out to Arizona for initially for the landscapes and everything. And then he headed to California and basically had a look around and thought, you know what? This light is pretty good. Let's settle here. And The Squaw Man was the very first film to be made either by Cecil B. DeMille or in Hollywood, at least partly. Fun additional fact... The mm-hmm. Squaw Man was remade twice in 1918 and 1931, both times by Cecil B. DeMille. That's amazing. So there you go. That's all but I got. But it's not good enough, Helen. No, that's fine. It's not good enough because it did not contain Mark Hamill's actual phone number. Or did it? No, no. <laughs> it could be in there in code. 1913, 1918. And what was the other one? Uh, 1931. 1931. Okay, well, we've got to call these numbers later on and see if Mark Hamill picks up. Uh, if we just call enough phone numbers, that sooner, or, sooner or later we'll get to Mark Hamill. Sooner or later we get to someone you do care about. <laughs> <laughs> Law of averages suggests. Uh, all right, so uh, Ben, your fact was barely a fact. I'm not even sure what it was. But it was did good. include the pun cloud factless, which I'm happy about. Come on, that's got to get some, that was some really points, good. surely. I'm glad you're, cloud I'm glad you're happy. Cloud <laughs> I'm genuinely a little bit surprised that Natalie Portman reads that slowly because I have her down as a fast reader in my head. Mm, maybe she was reading it multiple times. That's possible. Yes, that is possible. Perhaps it being unspeakably tedious sort of made it. No, it's take a longer. really good book. <laughs> it's like the opposite of tedious. It's incredibly mad mm. from moment to moment. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Anyway, sorry, carry on. Okay, so uh, Helen, your fact was good. It was fine. Um, but James, not only have you revealed Mark Hamill's phone number live on the show, which is incredible, but you have actually won. You have legitimately won, and it kills me to say it, but you have legitimately <laughs> won by some distance this week's fact section, which is, of course, called uh, Fact... Uh, what's it called? I am uh, the Fact Hunt. <laughs> <laughs> James Dyer is a big Fact Hunt, and uh, well done to him. A Factophobia, whatever, but yeah, I, I prefer the other one. Um, so well done, James. And, uh, Thanks. You're you're slowly but surely hauling the fourth chair and Helen back in up the leaderboard. So so well done you. And that is it, in fact, for this week's incredible fact section. Aren't you glad? 
Oh, I am. All right, so now the fact section's out of the way, it is time to dive straight into this week's listener question, which comes uh, on Twitter. I'm back on Twitter. <laughs> From at Alan Snedden. And this was in response to me posting the other day. I posted the music video for Bit by Bit, uh, which is Stephanie Mills' fantastic theme tune from the 1985 motion picture Fletch. And uh, he said, this could be a good question for the Empire podcast, and I agreed. Uh, Favourite tie-in songs from movies from the late 80s? Well, Fletch is 85, so I'm going to say 80s, through the 90s. Oh, so many great ones. A few parameters to establish here. Uh, If your song isn't directly written for this movie... I'm disqualified. So, oh, come on. That's an 11th hour disastrous what, what, what have you got? What have you got? The whole soundtrack got? to The Lost Boys for a start. <laughs> 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 Which I adore. So the thing is, for me, this all comes back to ones that I bought and then listened to endlessly again and again and again. Uh, and for me, mo- mainly that was The Lost Boys, Beverly Hills Cop and Top Gun, which I just played on repeat pretty much throughout that era, mm-hmm. uh, which I loved an awful lot. But then, um, so Top Gun, I mean, did, was Danger Zone, did Logins write that for Top Gun? I, I don't know. I believe he did. I believe did he? he did. Okay, yes. so that counts, and that's a banger. And so Take My Breath great. Away was written yeah. specifically yeah. for the movie. Yeah, so, and obviously the, the Top Gun anthem was, was written for Top yes, Gun. Yes, this isn't a competition, obviously, but uh, you, you know, it, it, it's best if the song was written directly for the film. It's even better if there was a music video for that, and it's even better, better, better if the stars of the film appeared in the music video looking slightly bemused and befuddled I'm not quite sure why they should be there. So are you, are you actually hoping to end up with the Goonies song as your winner? Well, is that good it? enough. Yeah, I mean, is that, what you're, is that what you're going for here? It, it's on my list, Helen, but it's not, you know, there's, there's no winner. There's no competition. We're just know, listening to a whole bunch you know. of groovy, groovy songs. Uh, groovy yes, songs. Cindy, Cindy Lauper. Uh, yeah, I watched, it, I watched the music video today from the Goonies, uh, Cindy Lauper. The Goonies are good enough. And it's just demented, that music yeah. video. Mm. And I, you know, and the next time I, I interview any of the Goonies, you know, be it Josh Brolin or Sean Astin, I need to ask them about their memories of being in that video. They probably don't have any. They were just flowing back to Hawaii, weren't they? They were flowing out to Hawaii for this like crazy video, and they had no clue were what they? was going on. I believe so. There, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think so. there was a yeah, question about a- it in the Good News reunion piece a few yeah, years yeah, ago. Yeah. Was there? Yeah. I was there. I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I may have asked it. Who knows? That's um, amazing. That's a cracker. It's, yeah, but Jimbo, I don't think the Lost Boys, I think that's that uses uh, pre-existing music. Well, not for all of it. So it's like things like Good Times and stuff, that's in excess and stuff. But um, Lost in the Shadows, the Lou Graham song, I pretty sure was written for it since its subtitle is The Lost Boys and he says the words The Lost Boys in the then song. I will allow um, it. Uh, also, Cry Little Sister, which is kind of theme mm-hmm. from The Lost Boys, which is Gerard McMahon, which is great. Uh, that, I think, probably counts as well. Now, I still believe by Tim Capello. I'm not sure that was written for The Lost Boys, but fucking Capello performs it topless, oiled up, in the film, so I'm taking that as a win regardless, <laughs> and that is masterful. That is the joy of masterful. sax. That is something. I mean, there is there. That is a screen moment without peer. <laughs> Joe rating his hips on the Santa Carla pier with his saxophone in is front of a guy? flaming brazier. Yeah, it's Tim Capello. Oh, I did not know that. Oiled up with his sort of oiled. He's got long oiled hair. He's got an oiled torso. He's got chains around his neck like Mr. T. But is there it's, oil it's involved, James? That's what we need. There's to a know. lot of oil. There is a lot of oil, and frankly, being that close to an open flame it was pretty irresponsible <laughs> yeah, that, was, that didn't but, seem wise uh, yeah. I mean yes. yeah yes. I love that crispy fried and I, Tim Capello and I love the fact that there's an illustration of Tim Capello with the saxophone on the cover of one of the Lost Boy comics it's just like mm. that oh it's amazing have you ever seen the SNL sketch that John Hamm did 
where uh, it is very Sergio. much yeah Sergio yes. which is very much inspired by that <laughs> yeah fair so, much, so much yeah. so that I thought the guy in the Lost Boys was called Sergio so I have uh, learned something today why you, I was going to say why did you put this in your film facts section but you won that so it doesn't really matter um, okay I'll allow that interesting enough for the Lost Boys soundtrack that was the first time I ever heard people are strange uh, but Same it's here. the Echo and the Bunnymen yeah, version not the Doors the version the superior Echo and the Bunnymen and version I kind of prefer the Echo and the Bunnymen yeah. version me too. Me too. I don't know whether I'm just all about you know scouse bands this week or or not, but uh, for 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 interesting reasons that I can't go into. But um, yeah, uh, it's great. I love the Doors, but uh, that that version rocks. Mm. Um, it's a great soundtrack all over. Yeah, it is. It's fantastic. And I I didn't have it on my list at all. Uh, and while you're talking about Beverly Hills Cop and uh, Top Gun, a lot of those music, a lot of those music, a lot of that music was written specifically for the film. The Heat Is On, Glenn Frey's incredible song that kind of starts Beverly Hills Cop. Is that what that was the written? Film? Was written for I the film. Did not know that. Oh, I yeah. did not. That's got so many good ones on that soundtrack. Absolutely love it. Uh, Patti LaBelle, New Attitude is great. Uh, Neutron Dance, Pointer Sisters, another brilliant one. <laughs> What's the one that plays in the strip club? I don't know. I don't. Remember. I can't remember the name of that one, but that's another great one. I absolutely don't know. Someone will write in and tell us. I'm sure uh, they will. Ben Helen, do you have any? Do you have anything? I, you can I, add? So I'm a sucker for a really like big stupid ballad. I am here for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and Brian yes. Adams, and everything I do, I do it for you. How long I was really that am. number one for Helen? Was that like, pop quiz? Was that one eleven weeks? And it was wet, wet, wet. Was sixteen, or were they both sixteen? I think it was sixteen, and wet, wet, wet was longer. It was no, number I'm one sure when wet, I was wet, born. Was sixteen. Was it? It was yeah. number one when I was born. Oh my god! It was just like Brian. a huge swathe of 1991. <laughs> Holy shit! Including the 24th of August. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I mean, look, I want to make myself look a little bit cooler by pointing out that in terms of songs written for films, absolute bangers. You actually want to go a little bit early. 1980, Nine to Five is the greatest song written specifically for a film soundtrack. That's, that's fucking that's incredible. incredible. Oh my God. No, that is absolutely correct. That's very, very incorrect, but I mean, okay. just like <laughs> some of the lyrics of that song, you know, Jolly just knows. Um, and obviously Saturday Night Fever before that, The Graduate before that. Both incredible mm-hmm. soundtracks, um, but yeah, I, I like I like all the shitty ballads. I like Streets of Philadelphia from Philadelphia. Um, a little bit of Bruce Springsteen there. Yeah, amazing. Um, I like even that terrible one from Don Juan de Marco that was again Brian Adams and then two other people, possibly Rod Stewart was one of them. It's very uncool, but I still sing along to it when it comes on any kind of radio. Oh, do you know? I mean, three, what's the Three Musketeers? Was it Three Musketeers? Yes, it might be Three Musketeers, but I also like the one from Don Juan de Marco. Ah, I can't remember exactly that one. Oh, what's the Uh, fucking name of it? Yeah. It's it's called something like All for One. Yeah, which I think means it's probably from Three Musketeers. Musketeers. Yeah, but I also like the other one. Anyway, I can't, I'm getting I can't two different ones one. confused. Brian Adams did a lot of these. It's really hard to keep them straight in my head. He did. He really did. I have so many to talk about, but Ben. <laughs> yeah, you guys have covered loads of 80s ones, so I'm about to go in on the 90s, which is pretty much everything Will Smith ever did. You've got Men in Black. You've got Wild Wild West. You've even got, I think this oh, was early June. 2000s at this point, but uh, Nod Your Head, Black Suit's Coming is the only good thing about Men in Black 2. Um, and in fact, ones I have a personal connection to, one of my first ever cassette tapes was the uh, the Jamiroquai. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I had to hear cassette tapes and all that. It was uh, the Jamiroquai single, Deeper Underground, from oh, yes. the 
Roland Emmerich Godzilla, <laughs> Godzilla soundtrack. Yes. Oh my Again, God. one of the only saving graces of the Rolling em- Roland Emmerich Godzilla. And not uh, only that's that. That's not true. That's not true. It's got it, some good stuff going for it. Well, the other good thing going for it is the cassette that my brother had, which was uh, Puff Daddy and Jimmy Page uh, doing, I think it's called Come With Me, which was the other. Yes. It, mm. There were two yes. singles from uh that from the Godzilla soundtrack and my, they were both my issue great. With the second one my issue with the second one is I thought you needed someone with a like a rougher voice than P Diddy I thought I felt like if that had been a method man I would have been all over it mm. but even at the time I was a bit like yeah bit overwhelmed if, by honestly, the beefy guitars that's it if we're going early 90s I'm gonna drop in you could be mine Guns N' Roses <laughs> has to be done has to be done I bought the cassette tape single of that one just you know wait 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 just when Terminator 2 came out Armageddon guys Armageddon mm-hmm. See, I kind of feel that, you know, I think we've talked about this in the podcast before, but years and years and years yeah. ago. Um, but we talked, you know, they, they kind of started to tail off. The, the heyday of the uh, theme or the song specifically written for a movie was in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it continued a little bit in the 1990s. Oh, no, it was big I in think, the 90s. It was big in but the I 90s. Think it began to tail off, especially if you look at you know, the, the best um the original song Oscar category, it really began to tail off. Most of the ones we're talking about will be from the 80s. But its grand swan song is I Don't Want to Miss a Thing <laughs> by Aerosmith yep. from Armageddon. Correct. Yeah. Uh, which is the song that you play when you want to shake the hand of the daughter of the bravest man you've ever met. <laughs> that is the song that you play. And again, it's got clips from the film as well. And that, that's the sort of thing that doesn't really happen anymore. And it's such a shame. What I love very much is that when Bill Fickner came in to do a web chat in the office and we all went up to him and said, we'd like to shake the hand of the man who shook the hand of the daughter of the bravest man he ever met. What what I will say is that, Chris, you're wrong because this phenomenon is kind of coming back. It's coming back around Mm. because there was some there's been some great ones recently. You think of um, Sunflower for Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse post Malone. Uh, There was a great Dua Lipa song for Alita Battle Angel called Swan Song. Mm. Um, I think there was a real rise as well. Um, Obviously, teen movie soundtracks are always a massive deal. But um, you look at things like the Twilight soundtracks and then the Hunger Games soundtracks where they had people like Lord, like doing lead singles with tie-in music videos and then soundtracks off the back of it. So I feel like even if they're not quite as chart-topping as they used to be, the the legacy of this lives on. Celine, Celine, Celine. my heart will go on. Come it on, will. people. And I thought you were going to say as well, Deadpool 2. <laughs> yeah, yes. Celine Dion. Yeah. Also that. Also <laughs> that. We have to rule out as well any uh, any musical songs or anything from a Bond movie. The Bond movie songs are set they're, they're set aside. They're on the different thing. You're right. It, it, but it does happen. I think from time to time because uh, every year when we do the best movie songs of the year, there's there's no shortage of stuff that's been written originally for movies. But yeah. just because the way that the charts work these days, you know, music videos aren't. I mean, obviously still a, still a thing, but they don't. They're not as dominant or as, as prevalent as they used to be. But for example. You know, one of the best take that songs is Rule the World from Stardust. Yes. That's 2007. And they build in the name of one of the characters into the lyrics in a really clever way in that song. Full mark. That's what you want, Helen. Yes, that's, that is that's what, what, you, what you want. You that want, is what you want. Not just songs written for the movies, um, but songs that incorporate the characters or themes or events from the movie in the song, which is one of the reasons why I love Bit by Bit by Stephanie Mills from Fletch, which includes the line, Fletch is working overtime. Oh, God. And, I mean, and he, yeah, I mean, he is. He is working overtime. He's got so much to juggle that it's guy. It's no tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition, is it? I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, what is, Helen? What Quite, is? Quite. I mean. Um, question for you. Question for you. Don't you forget about me. Did Simple Minds write that for The Breakfast Club? I think they did. 
I put money on that. I'd have to don't Google know. it, but I think they did. Right, hang on. Hang Quickly, on, to the Google. <laughs> to the Google, to the Google. All right, here we are. Recording history, right. The song was written and composed by producer Keith Forsey while scoring The Breakfast Club. Come on! All right, okay. Well, in that case, we, we let that one as well. That's a, that's a good song. Okay, that is on the list. That is on the bloody list. But there are so many songs, guys. There are so many songs. Uh, another one, everybody associates... Smash Mouth All-Star with Shrek. But actually, originally, that was a song on and for the Mystery Men soundtrack. It was on Mystery oh, Men before it was ever on Shrek. Good call. Good call. Yes. <laughs> That's kind of amazing. Um, <laughs> all right. I'm going, to mention, I'm going to mention some. Not all of these are endorsements, okay? <laughs> but I'm going to mention some. <laughs> See if you guys agree. Holiday Road by Lindsay Buckingham yes. from yes. National Lampoon. That's Vacation. on my Christmas playlist. Yeah, correct. 100%. As, as indeed Helen Shoot Christmas Vacation by Mavis Staples. It is, is also on my Christmas playlist. It is, a, sure. it is a Christmas staple. Uh, <laughs> the Power of Love by Huey Lewis and the News. I was going to ask if that was definitely written for Back to the Future, but I'm glad it to know was. it is. Good. It was. I looked it up, I double-checked, and of course it is played in the movie. Mm-hmm. That's the song that Marty and his band play uh, at, the, uh, at the theme show. And who, of course, is the judge who tells them that they're, they're too loud? Is it Huey Lewis? It's Huey Lewis. Hey. Um, this, is, this is one that I love, although I realise that this is absolutely a guilty pleasure. Arthur's theme. Best That You Can Do by Christopher <gasps> Cross from the movie Arthur. I've just realised um, we didn't mention Car- uh, Carly Simon and uh, Let the River Run from Working Girl and I'm covered in shame. See, I, don't, I don't know that one that oh, well. Oh, you, you do. See. Oh, you absolutely 100% do. do. I? Yeah, definitely. Uh, okay. <laughs> but Arthur's theme is incredible. Absolutely incredible. And uh, is a, I, I'm going to sing it next time we're karaoke. Mm. I often get caught between the moon and New York City. Yeah. You know, best that you can do is fall in love. Uh, let me see. Bit by Bit by Stephanie Mills. Uh, someone wrote in to say that there's another theme from Fletch. There's another song from Fletch uh, that is called Get Out of Town. And it's by a guy called Dan Hartman. And it's terrible. And it's, um, I think it's on the end of Fletch, but Chevy Chase is actually in the movie. Um, and another reason why I love Arthur's theme is because it is about Arthur and it was written for the movie and it does say Arthur quite a lot. Up Where You Belong it oh, yeah. was written. So so what I did was I started going to the Oscars because mm-hmm. the Oscars, generally speaking, gets this absolutely fucking wrong time <laughs> after time. They didn't even time nominate. After, no. <laughs> time after time. <laughs> they didn't even nominate. Can you believe this, guys? They didn't even nominate Staying Alive. What? The year that Saturday Night Fever came out, they didn't even nominate for Best Original Song, Staying Alive. That's ridiculous. Did they nominate Idiots. something else on the on the soundtrack? Nope. What? That nope. is outrageous. Idiots. Yeah. Idiots. Stupid idiots. What about um, I've Had the Time of My Life? Oh, that's very nice of you to say that, Helen. I know, um, I have, I've yeah. enjoyed this podcast as well. Um, but uh, yeah, that is also on the list. Eye of the Tiger, Rocky Three. Oh my good God, Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. And of course, they rewrote the song for Rocky Four and just changed it a little bit and called it Burning Heart, which is also an absolute fucking banger. <laughs> oh, St. Elmo's Fire. The song for St. Elmo's Fire is incredible. The lyrics are the most crazy overblown. It's like, are we where the eagles flying high and high? Oh, yes. Also, just remember. Beaches. Beaches, guys. Beaches. Okay. With an E-A-C-H, what you, not a what, T-C-H. What, you were the wind beneath my wings? Yeah. Isn't that an old song? Is it? Is it? 
Is it though? I think it is. I feel like I feel like Bette Midler makes it her own though. <laughs> I'm going to quickly check this. I'm also you are looking the it wind up. <laughs> beneath my wings. Yes, it's a cover. Oh, it's a cover. Uh, written in 1982 by Jeff Silbar and Larry Henley, uh, and was first recorded by Kamal in 1982 for a country and western album. Uh, but yes, sadly that is disqualified. But yes, what I did was I went to the Oscar Best Original Song category because, for the most part, they get things horrendously wrong. But you'll be delighted to know, Helen. Um, oh no, they didn't give Dolly Parton for nine to five. Fame won Absolutely. in 1980. Oh well, no, that I mean, mm, no, but yeah. still Dolly. It's still Dolly. Then Christopher Cross won in 1981 for Arthur's theme, Best You Can Do. Um, uh, then Up Where We Belong in 1982, which beat Eye of the Tiger. I'm not sure about oh, that no, in hindsight. I'm, I'm with that. Yeah? Yeah. Um, Flashdance, what a feeling. Uh, beat Papa, Can You Hear Me from, uh, from Yenzo. <laughs> do you want to build a snowman? <laughs> Uh, then 1984, and I think this is an absolute disgrace. I just called to say I love you. One, Stevie Wonder, The Woman mm-hmm. in Red, one of his worst songs. <laughs> it beat Footloose, oh Against All Odds, and Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters, Ooh. that's rape Absolutely. That's, that's... I mean, Ghostbusters is arguably the best song ever written for yeah. a film. So, it's, I mean, absolutely. It's not, but... 100% should have wow. won. <laughs> I, and I today in indefensible <laughs> positions. <laughs> Next, you're going to tell me that Coolio didn't win for Gangster's Paradise. I'm just going to leave. I picked up uh, Ghostbusters for a quid on seven inch in a record shop, and my life oh, has never wow. been the same since. So also, oh my god, there's another one, another '90s one. I have the seven inch single from uh, Wayne's World of Ballroom Blitz. Tia Carrera doing Ballroom oh, Blitz is one of yes. the songs I own. That is that is a, a classic as well. I've That's also thought of another one on the '80s front. Karate Kid, yep. you're the best. Joe you're Esposito, yeah, yes, that is a cracker. It and is a cracker. we'll get to it. We'll get to it in a second. Was that written for the film, though, Ben? I like to think, I think it, was. it was. I will check that. <laughs> yeah, check that, and also check "You're the Voice" by John Farnham, and see if those those two were written for the for the <laughs> films. If they were, then they're definitely contenders. We may do a spot. We may do a Spotify playlist after this because we have mentioned nothing but banger after banger after banger. Total bangers, uh, yes. <laughs> total, total bangers. That's what we're going to call it. Total film bangers. That's what we're going to call it. I think that's that's acceptable. That's totally fine. Uh, Nineteen eighty-five. I'm going to go through this really quickly. Okay. Say you say me. Lionel Richie <laughs> from White Knights it's won not his best, the Oscar. Films. It beat, it's a disgrace, it beat <laughs> The Power of Love. Oh, oh come on. Oh, yeah, come yeah. on. I'm Honestly. with Helen, and you know how I hate to say that. Mm. <laughs> 1986, um, Take My Breath Away. Bam, bam, bam. Yeah. No What's fun. the song from Pretty Woman that Roxette did? That's got to be it written for the song. Love. It must have been love. Was that written for the love? Thank you. Yes. <laughs> ben, can you Google that whilst we're doing this and find out whether It Must Have Been Love was written for a Pretty Woman? I'm going to Google that next, but while I've got the page open for The Karate Kid, it was yeah. initially written for Rocky Three, but then they went with Eye of the Tiger instead. <laughs> and then it was going to go to Flashdance, but the Flashdance guys turned it down in favour of Maniac by Michael Sembello. And then Karate Kid director John G. Avildsen, uh was like, oh, I'll have that for The Karate Kid. So it wasn't That's written amazing. specifically Destiny. for it, but it was it originated on the soundtrack for The Karate Kid. 
See, that's interesting because Flashdance, I mean, this is around the, 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 the heyday of stuff like this, these movie tie-in things, was around the time because Flashdance was huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, I looked it up. It's like the number three film of, of 1983. And uh, Simpson and Bruckheimer, who were the producers, one of the reasons for that was because the soundtrack was so huge. The soundtrack was, was everywhere. And they had, you know, all those songs from Flashdance were all over the shop. Uh, and so they tried to basically replicate that on every film, every they, film did they did over yeah. the next <laughs> for the next four or five years. Um, but uh, very, very quickly, so Take My Breath Away won the Oscar in 1986. It Beat Helen, okay. uh, you'd be furious by this. Mean Green Mother from Outer Space, from Little Shop of Horrors. I mean, it's good, but it's not my favourite song in the soundtrack. So, okay, I'll allow it. Okay. Uh, and it also beat Glory of Love by uh, Peter Cetera. I am the man who will fight for your honor. So, beat yeah. that. All right, I'm, I'm with that okay. as well. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 1987. If anyone ever asks you who won the Oscar for Best Original Song in 1987, you simply go, just remember! It was, <laughs> I've had the time of my life from Dirty Dancing. This is correct. Which yeah. beat, nothing's going to stop us now from oh, Mannequin. No, I mean, yes, but you've got to lose some points for being from Mannequin. Yeah, like, yeah, admittedly, that probably didn't count against it, but that is a banger without peer. <laughs> And also one that I did a duet with Terry White with at karaoke once. Did you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my god, we have we to find that footage. Karaoke again we day. really, we really do. Socially responsible karaoke. Uh, it also be Storybook Love from The Princess Bride, nineteen eighty-eight. I, I was going to mention that. Mm-hmm. It's got a really good chorus and really bad verses. So you know, your mileage may vary on that one. <laughs> All right, 1988, uh, Working Girl, Let the River Run. I don't know that song you at all, do, Helen. I, I swear don't, to God, I you don't. Do. I don't. Let I don't. the I don't. river run, let all the dreamers wake the nation. No. No? No. No, close So up. good. No. And no. yet it's about capitalism. Go figure. I don't understand <laughs> it. Go figure. Uh, but uh, yes, it gave Carly Simon the Oscar she was cruelly denied for Nobody Does It Better for The Spy Who Loved Me. But uh, okay, so 1989, Little Mermaid won uh, for Under the Sea. No one knows that song. That's um, right. Looking at all the other ones. No, that was rubbish here. 1989, 19- hang on. 1989, wasn't that Fight the Power? Isn't that Do the Right Thing? Um, it's a very, very good point. Fight the Power was written for Do the Right Thing, was not nominated. No way! That's that ridiculous. Fucking shocker. I mean, it's the Academy at the, <laughs> in the, in the 80s and the 90s. Getting peri- things periodically wrong uh, was their their thing. I was just looking up Seal Kiss My Rose, but it was on a Seal album before it was on Batman Forever. Oh, sadly. shame. <laughs> what about Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me? I think that was See, that's that was new for Batman that Forever. Was, I think. Yeah, that was written for it Batman was, Forever. Yeah. yeah, that should be on here. That's a banger. Idiots. Idiots. That, uh, uh, that one slaps, as the kids say, isn't that right, Ben? It does. It slaps and bangs. <laughs> thumps is also uh, an, an adjective that could be used. It thumps. It thrusts and thumps, uh, as the kids say these I days. I trust right. Ben, though, when he tells us these things, because yeah. he can tell us anything, that's and we'd right. be like, oh, yes, that's what the cool young people are saying. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Stop trying to make fetch happen, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, real quick, we're in the 90s. 1990, Dick Tracy, Sooner or Later. That is an absolute nailed-on classic. I bloody love that song. Yeah, a really, really, really good song. It's song time, for God's sake. You've got to have some respect here, people. No. Outrageous. Snow Blaze of Glory, there's a Helen. It beat Blaze of Glory from Young oh, Guns 2. Oh, now I'm oh. conflicted. Oh, <laughs> damn. Come on. 1991, Everything I Do, I Do It For You. Correct. 
did not win the Oscar. That went instead to Beauty and a Beast. <laughs> I'm not going to argue uh, with Mencken, though. A film I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> 1992 was again rubbish. Oh, no, it wasn't rubbish because I have nothing from The Bodyguard. Oh. Did not win Best Original Song. Instead, A New World I would from see, Aladdin. What we're getting into now is the Mencken era, where he basically won all of the music awards going for like years in a row to the point that they actually changed the criteria for some yes, of the Oscars. Well, couldn't be him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, they, they used to split score, I think, into best um, comedy right. score or something, and he basically won it something like eight years in a row, and they were like, guys, this is getting embarrassing. Let's kind of And the Oscar for not being Alan Menken goes to... <laughs> Malin Benkin <laughs> looks mysteriously like Alan Menken, but with a, with a with suspiciously fake-looking beard. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, 1993, uh, Menken's run came to an immediate end, uh, and it was uh, Ben, our good friend, Bruce the Boss Springsteen, who yes. won for Phil- Streets of Philadelphia yeah. from Philadelphia. It's yeah. a great song. And beat the, uh, the inferior uh, Neil Young song from the same movie. So the, justice was served Yeah, it there. is, isn't it? It kind of it's, is. It's better it than kind the Neil Young song. Neil Young, though, sounds more like Kermit the Frog than the actual Kermit the Frog does these <laughs> days. So, uh, you know, I think they should probably go over him. It's not easy being green. 1994. 1994. Uh, Lion King. Can you feel the love tonight? Beat nope. Circle of Life and Hakuna Matata. I mean, how the fuck does Hakuna Matata not win that one? Uh, I realise this this segment has slightly changed uh, from what it was originally to us just basically going the Academy or morons. But hey, hey, ho. 1995. Uh, Pocahontas. Colours of the Wind. Colours won. of the Wind. Yeah, it's it's that's, not a bad song. Don't it's even remember good. the song. It beat from Don Juan de Marco. Have you ever really loved a woman? Have you ever really loved a woman? Have you? Have you, though? <laughs> I'd like to apologise to the people of Spain wow. <laughs> for everything we just did. Because if you have, uh, what's it like? <laughs> <laughs> Toy Story, it also beat You've Got a Friend in Me. Oh, oh no. You've got a friend in oh, me. No. Oh, no, he's back oh. again. You've got That's a friend in me. Uh, 1996... Are we going out to the present day? Is that the goal? I'm just doing the 90s. I'm doing the 80s and the 90s. Ifita, you must love me. Don't cry for me. No, because, yeah, it's one of the... I get really cynical about these. uh, Let's throw an extra song into our musical so we're in with a chance of best original song. And so I have to, on principle, object to that. 1996, so Ifita won, but Mm. it beat that thing you do from that thing you do. That thing, wait, that was 90s? That film was in the 90s? Mm-hmm. Oh my God, I was working I in so a video old. store in York when that came out. I remember it very wow. distinctly. 1997, yes, Celine Dion won for My Heart Will Go On, sure. uh, but she beat How Do I Live from Con Air. Oh, uh, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, by Leanne <laughs> Rimes. Uh, 1998, The Prince of Egypt, When You Believe. Now that beat, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. Yeah, but here's the thing. You can argue with both Mariah and Whitney. Like, that's just not possible. Like, physicists have proved it. So (laughs) there's nothing you can do there. And uh, 1999 then gave Phil Collins the Oscar. He was cruelly denied for both Two Hearts uh, from Buster and Against All Odds from Against All Odds um, when it uh, rewarded Tarzan, You'll Be In My Heart, which is frankly shite. um, Mm. And it's also not... Either Save Me by Amy Mann from Magnolia oh, or great song. 
Blame Canada from South Park, Bigger, Longer and Uncut. What were the other two nominees that year? Uh, Music of My Heart from Music of the Heart by yeah, uh, Diane Warren. Okay. And uh, hey, it's Randy oh, Newman. God. He's back again with Well, She Loved Me. But oh, Toy no. Story oh. 2. No, he it's didn't sing that. Song. That was Sarah McLachlan and that is a great but song. He sang the demo. Hey, Sarah, I wanted you sing the song like this. And she went, no, no <laughs> thanks, Randy. <laughs> I, I, I have never been able to sing that all at karaoke because it makes me cry too much. So Really? Yeah, all right, also we're it's quite it. hard, but yeah. We're doing it. Chris, while you've got Wikipedia open, can you just tell me in... <laughs> no, Ben, this is all from memory. <laughs> You're a fact machine. In 2001, yeah. uh, was there the rightful winner of the uh, quartet who did Lady Marmalade slash Marmalade? Uh, Christina Aguilera, <laughs> Lil' Kim, Pink and Maya. No, Ben, and I'll tell you why. Because they cover. weren't nominated. Mm. What? Because it was That's shocking. It's a cover. It's a cover. It's a cover song. It's a cover. Right. It's a cover. Ah, of it's a cover. Course. Yeah. Of course. Uh, There's everything in that. In 2001, the winner of the Oscar was If I Didn't Have You by Randy Newman <laughs> from Monsters, Inc. And, um, but he beat Paul McCartney for Vanilla Sky from Vanilla Sky, which is one of the best Paul McCartney solo tracks, uh, in my humble opinion. But anyway, listen, we can't do the 2000s. We'll save that for another podcast uh, because that is it. Unless you guys have any more songs you want to mention, that is it for our listener question section. That was a long one, but mm. very enjoyable. And we should do a Spotify playlist. Yes, Destiny's please. Child Independent Women Part 1 from Charlie's oh. Angels. Yes. So good that they, they tried to recreate it for the for the twenty nineteen one, didn't they? They they got the powers of Ariana Grande and Lana Del Rey and <laughs> and uh, Miley Cyrus and <laughs> but they just they just couldn't hope to live up to no. Independent Women Part One. It was a, an impossibly hard by high hard by impossibly <laughs> high bar to cross. Now was that written for the now was that written for the movie? I believe it was written for the movie, but it also appears on the album The Writings on the Wall. Because it has the little bit at the beginning with Lucy Liu. Charlie's Angels, come on. So it was written for it, but it is on on a Destiny's Child album as well. Interesting. It was not nominated. So I wonder if there might have been, either it was the Academy being dicks or it just didn't meet the criteria, which is that you had to be written by Alan Menken or or Randy (laughs) Newman, as as we've since learned. Uh, Anyway, that is it for our listener question. Uh, Thank you so much to at Alan Snedden for sending it in. Uh, So basically, if you want to have your question read out in the Empire podcast, Wait for me to either ask in a panic every Thursday, although I've been okay the last couple of weeks, uh, or you can just slide into my DMs or just or just tweet us. Tweet us and use the hashtag Emperor Podcast. That does help uh, the chances of me me seeing it as well. Let's move swiftly into the movie news section. And um, starting with the news, I don't know whether this is shocked anyone that Tenet has moved back once again. Uh, it was meant to come out uh, in, well, when was it meant to come out actually? July last sometime? Week. Yeah, the 17th. Last week. Then it was meant to come out and it moved back to the 31st and it was moved back to mid-August. And now Warner Brothers, in a rather unprecedented move, have taken it off the schedules. They're saying, some people are saying indefinite. The scuttlebutt seems to be that Warner Brothers are going to announce an August release date for it, but only in certain countries around the world. And it seems that America is not as on top of the coronavirus as perhaps it should be. And so that America may miss out on Tenet, at least for the first few weeks. And Warner Brothers seem to be willing to take the risk of widespread piracy with this one. What do you guys make of all this? 
See, I'm, I'm, I'm not at all surprised it got delayed. I never imagined for one second it was going to come out. You only had to look at the infection rates in America to kind of see that. What I'm kind of surprised at, and to be fair, they haven't 100% said they're going to go for an international first release. They kind of hinted. They said it won't be a day and date release in the traditional sense, but they were quite vague about it. So I do wonder whether they've 100% decided what their strategy is. But for a film like this that's so plot-centric, it is a big deal for it to come out elsewhere first. So all the secrets then get spilled, and you've got I think that is going to impact its box office when and if it does open in the US. So if if indeed it does open in the US, because you know that's also a possibility. Like if it comes out, you know, overseas territories in August, and then you know America's coronavirus thing rolls on until the end of the year, will it come to American theaters in 2021? Is it even worth it at that point? Will it go straight to? I mean, who the hell knows? I mean, okay, with the caveat that you're right, who the hell knows anything at this point? I think that yeah. uh, we can guarantee it will be in cinemas in the US at some point in the future. Well, we can we can expect, let's say, it, it to be in cinemas in the US at some point in the future, because it's still the single biggest film market in the world. I think I'm right in saying it would be very, very odd if it didn't, if they weren't planning that at some point. I think it's, it's interesting. They've been playing kind of release date chicken um, so far, trying to move it the minimal amount to get it to kind of safety. Um, and clearly the minimum has kind of shifted. And it, and it is a really... Uh, terrifying for them, I'm sure, fascinating for us, perhaps, if we can divorce ourselves from the very real consequences for a minute. Um, Game of Chicken in that sense, because on one hand, they clearly want to be the first film back in, in cinemas. I'm sure that cinemas would love it if they were, because that's an instant reason to go and see something on the big screen, because, you know, Nolan, better than maybe anybody else, makes his films big screen experiences that have to be seen there and can't possibly be seen first on on video. Um, but at the same time, if you go too early, people don't come back because they're scared, because it's not safe, then uh, or because it's not safe, then you risk losing a substantial slice of what could be a billion dollar plus box office. And that has major, major potential consequences for your bottom line. So it is a massive risk either way, to be honest. Um, and there, there has got to be a temptation to sit on it for you know, six months, maybe longer, and let slightly lower risk films go first, which then has a problem for the cinemas because it doesn't have the same necessarily immediate appeal that a Nolan sci-fi movie would. I think James is right in that it's partly about the plot secrecy as well, isn't it? Because if you look at other things that are coming out, then Mulan feels like it would be a safer bet to sort of draw people back in. But there there aren't plot Mm. spoilers for Mulan. The story has been told before. We know the story. It's about kind of a spectacle that people can get used to going back to the cinema again. Whereas with Tenet, when it's the whole point is that nobody knows anything about this film, I, I wonder if they would, yeah, release that veil of secrecy and risk sort of all the plot points and even just the general idea. We don't know what this film is about. We don't know the general idea of the film even. And that mm. is sort of on another level compared to, yeah, even a lot of the other sort of blockbusters that are uh, that are on the way, even, yeah, Mulan and A Quiet Place Part 2. You know the central conceit. There will be surprises in there, I'm sure, but it feels less kind of tricky uh, in, in that respect than Tenet does. Mm. Mm. I mean, it's hard to imagine what they're expecting from the box office for this film either. Because, I mean, it's unlikely they're expecting a billion-dollar box oh, office are, from for this, sure. I would think. I mean, he's never managed it before with one with a, one of these type of films, has he? I mean, what, Dunkirk was half a billion? It was 500 oh, or Dunkirk something? Oh, Dunkirk wasn't I think? big. I'm thinking about Inception um, and uh, Interstellar, which Inception were more like 800. Inception was 800, 800 yeah. something. Interstellar was less than 700. I don't know. I don't think there's. I I wouldn't have thought this has a chance of breaking a billion at the box office. I really wouldn't. 
Um, that's not to say it won't do well. I, 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 and I fully inter- mm. imagine it would be an excellent film. But uh, I think Mulan is m- m- going to blow it out the water money-wise. Oh, I think Mulan's a huge film, no question there. Yeah, but I, I, I don't think that they give. Uh, I don't think that they have ruled out a billion dollars for this. I, I absolutely think that's what they're hoping and aiming for. Well, we should all aim for a billion dollars, Helen. I firmly I believe do, that. I do, every day, James. Just keep <laughs> I would get out of bed for less than a billion dollars. Um, <laughs> what, what, what do you guys get paid for this podcast? Uh, oh, God, this this got awkward pretty quickly. Oh, no, I'm um, doing it from bed, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, just read, Mariska Hargitay teases Law & Order SVU reunion with Stabler. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. James, can I come on the Pilot TV podcast to talk about this? Absolutely not. Excellent. Um, although um, I have no doubt that Terry will do. I'm uh, sure speaking she will. of Terry, speaking of Terry and news, we should yeah. probably mention, and we will obviously go into much more depth on this on the Pilot TV podcast because she'll be there. But Terry's memoir, it's not an autobiography, it is a memoir. I got lectured on this. What's the uh, difference? Uh, memoir is uh, is more thematic. It is a section of a life, not a complete life. Uh, so this is uh, this is basically all all the stuff that happened to Terry before Empire. Uh, but yeah, so her book coming before undone has times. been <laughs> yes before indeed. the Empire. Uh, is being adapted by Bad Wolf Productions, which did His Dark Materials and uh, a Discovery of Witches, which I rather like. And they also did The Night Owl, I believe, as well. But uh, yeah, so it's heading towards the screen. This is amazing. Which is very, very exciting yeah. for Terry. Yeah, isn't it which just? Which would be isn't exciting anyway, but it's the people doing it as well. It's, it's Bad yeah. Wolf Productions, yeah. who, which is the Cardiff-based production company formed from a bunch of the people who helped bring Doctor Who back to the screen mm-hmm. in 2005. Hence they do the His Dark Materials. They do The Night of... They do a discovery of witches, which I was on set of. That was my first set visit for Empire. It's coming up full circle. I wonder if I can go on set of this. Where is that? It's been off the air for like two years. Like, when is season two coming? It's coming. They've started teasing it, I think, among all of the beginnings of the Comic-Con stuff. So that is on the way. So Ben, you could go on set and start going, that guy playing Ben Travis, his hair isn't extravagant enough. (laughs) He doesn't look more more (laughs) Quickly, you have an hour to grow your hair longer or you're fired. (laughs) Get off the set. But no, this is this is fantastic news. I'm sure Terry would prefer to perhaps be in partnership with Dick Wolf, uh, rather than Bad Wolf, but 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 all is good. All is good. Uh, This is gonna be exciting. This can be exciting. Who's going to play Terry? Uh, We've never done this. Okay, so uh, listen, one of the questions we get asked most, probably (laughs) the question we get asked most on the Empire podcast is if there was a film of the Empire podcast, because why the fuck would there ever be a (laughs) film of the Empire podcast? But say, for example, there was. Say, for example, Netflix. Look, Netflix will eventually get around to making a movie of everything. So, okay, there will be a, a movie of us one day. Who would play us? Yeah, Tom Holland would play Ben. I think that goes without saying. I've never wanted to answer this question. But Jason now, Statham would play me. Now Terry is going to be on TV, all being well. So who could possibly play Terry? I have three options that I'd be very happy with. Okay. One of those is Vicky McClure, Midlands legend. I think she would be a great Terry White. The other mm-hmm. one is Billy Piper. I think Billy Piper would be a great Terry White. And um, my third option would be ever in this town. I think Ruth Wilson would make a great Terry Ruth White. Ruth Wilson. Ruth Wilson. Mm. I like mm. it. Yes, let's go for that. Especially yes. the Bad Wolf connection. She's already yep. in touch, obviously, with his dark materials. So those are my shouts. Gemma Arterton. Ooh. Also acceptable. Yeah. Looks good with a beehive. Cara Delavine. No. Oh. Lauren Sosha. I think that's nailed on. Mm, what from uh, Misfits? <laughs> and yes. she is. She is absolutely great. But is that a compliment? 
<laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> she is fab though. I love Lauren Sochi. She's so funny. Yeah, I'm not. That's not a diss on Lauren Sochi. It's more just see, she plays comedy working class characters, and I have on many occasions on the Pilot TV podcast said that I think that she should play her. I've got it. I've got it. I've oh, absolutely God. got it. She's a little too old now, but with a little bit of de aging technology, this could work, and Terry would be over the bloody moon. Mariska. Hargitay. I knew you were going to say that. I knew he was going to say that. Mariska Hargitay, Mariska Hargitay. Mariska Hargitay. <laughs> Why is some kind of incantation a... that we're doing to make it come true? It's, no, it's, it's from the Love Guru. It's from so the there's, Love Guru. It's there's the a bit, worst. Um, the um, Mike Myers character all the way through as a sort of, as a mantra says, Mariska Hargitay. Um, you know, that's his like namaste to yeah, people. Right. Yeah. Uh, and the joke is it sounds a little bit like Mariska Hargitay and then later in that really smug to camera uh, style that uh, Mike Myers began to lapse into towards you know towards the end he's not dead but you know towards the end of his kind of big screen career because he you know, he kind of pulled pulled away didn't he um, there's a bit where he goes Mariska Hargitay Mariska Hargitay and it cuts to Mariska Hargitay and she's like mm, Mariska Hargitay and it's it's absolutely terrible it's one of the worst movies you will ever see and yet that bit has lodged in my head <laughs> and I, I quote it all the time as does Helen in fact so Mariska Hargitay Mariska Hargitay that's my suggestion for Terry White but yeah really really exciting really exciting but the sequel in which we're in that's going to blow the fucking doors off. Uh, so any other movie news? Because that, technically speaking, isn't a movie, uh, but I will allow it. Other movie news. Um, there was some. Yes, for sure. Uh, I've got some. See. I've got some. Okay, I've got some. It'll, really, it'll blow your mind. Helen, you're going to love this one. Okay. Because the Russos are reuniting okay. with Chris Evans. Yes. And also Ryan Gosling, which is, you know, nice too, I guess. <laughs> and Marcus and McFeely. Hey! But this is not an Avengers movie. This is not in the MCU. Instead, nope. they are making a spy thriller Spies for Netflix. Uh, and it is said to be Netflix's biggest budget movie to date, that they are really properly going all out to try and create a big old franchise. Um, and it's called The Grey Man. And it's based on a novel by uh, someone who wrote a book. Mark Greeny, yep. Mark him. And uh, it's about Ryan Gosling is the a top spy, a CIA man who goes rogue, but for good reasons, because he's a good guy. And he is chased around the world by another CIA man who is probably a bad CIA man. And he he will be played by Chris Evans. Maybe he's a good so, CIA man. We don't know. Maybe they team up and take down whatever. Yeah, but the fact that the uh, the good CIA man played by Ryan Gosling is the hero of a series of books and the bad CIA man isn't mm. leads me to believe the bad CIA man gets killed or perhaps just retires and goes off to star in Johnny English 4. Exactly. Maybe Wait. he gets killed, but then in the very final moments, he appears slightly blurry and out of shot by the side of the swimming pool, just in case they want to bring him back for a Netflix, <laughs> Netflix okay, sequel. Okay. <laughs> no spoilers. We're not even going to say what you're talking about there, but you're definitely talking about a film. <laughs> Yes, oh. and there's there's no link between that film that you mentioned, Ben, and this other film, which is written by Joe Russo. No, yeah, on an, on an unrelated note, it's interesting that Netflix is reteaming with the Russos, because they recently said as well, didn't they, that Extraction is the biggest Netflix film mm. of all time, based on their own slightly 
strange metrics. No, yeah, yeah. based on the amount of people who have watched three minutes. Two minutes. Of Not even the film. that. Two minutes. Two minutes. It's just two, two minutes, minutes yeah. of the film. It auto plays for two minutes when you go and make a cup of tea. It's just their metrics. <laughs> but are a lot demented. more people are making tea while watching the beginning of Extraction than when watching <laughs> the beginning of any other Netflix movie, and that's going to come something. True. When you see Chris Hemsworth, you get thirsty. Oh, I see what you did there. I see what you did there. Yeah, I would take I would take that film even over the three star masterpiece that is The Old Guard. So you know, <laughs> are you, you sure you don't want to add a starter with this week? <laughs> yeah, it's got inflation. Every episode, it gets a new star. While we're discussing news, I should probably mention that Dave Franco has yeah. a new job, and he is doing a biopic of Rob Van Winkle. I know, right? Better known as Vanilla Ice. <laughs> Uh, and I don't quite know why this is happening, but this is a thing that's happening. Uh, he's going to be he's going to be doing Vanilla Ice's life, and he's talked about this, and he said that in the same way that the Disaster Artist was kind of you know it, it wasn't taking the piss out of Tommy Wiseau, they want to chart a similar kind of tonal tonal line here. Like they were, you know, it's not going to be a broad comedy. It's going to be sensitive. It's going to be heartfelt, and we are going to find out. Presumably, it will involve him filming 1991's Cool as Ice in it, uh, where he plays a rapper called Johnny who gets stuck in a small town and falls for a local girl whose family is in witness protection. I mean, that's a fucking classic, that is. So, um, yeah, good if, stuff. If this I, doesn't end up being called Ice Ice Baby, there is no justice in the world. Yeah. yeah Slice like a ninja, cut like a razor blade. I mean, I, I'm actually kind of here for this. There was a, I remember seeing a really interesting documentary a few years ago basically arguing that Vanilla Ice was a talented rapper. He was really, really good at what he did, but he was basically packaged by these managers as this kind of absurd figure and of course it worked financially at first and he kind of went along with it and and it completely ruined his life completely ruined his life so i think i think there's a lot of tragedy to be mined actually out of the vanilla doesn't ice he story do, like a home improvement show or something yeah, I believe he does, like, yeah. yeah he's he's become more famous for that now and he does like cameos in films as himself wasn't he in the, yes. the yeah he was wrong in that awful, recently yeah. awful awful film yes the wrong missing yes 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 he was he was and uh, i i'm i'm absolutely not here for this <laughs> <laughs> but um, nevertheless it does seem like it's happening so well done everybody involved uh, um oh and um, speaking of films i'm absolutely not here for the grease prequel Summer yeah. Lovin' mm-hmm. is continuing apace despite all attempts to stop it. Um, I've written several letters now to Paramount, but it's happening anyway. And Brett Haley, who did direct Hard Speed Loud, which I which love. Which is good, yeah. Uh, is going to direct it. And he's going to take over from John August, who was originally attached. And of course, this will focus on the summer when Danny and Sandy first <sighs> met. Yeah. It's almost like they covered that in the film <laughs> Grease <laughs> with a really minutes. famous song. Yeah, um, yeah. On a, another Brett Haley note, uh, oh, wow. it was announced this week, uh, Netflix announced, you know, they always have just things that are bubbling away in production under the surface and then they're like, this is a thing and now it's out in a few weeks. Um, I've, I've long wondered, post Moana, what happened to Auli Cravalho? Because she was super charming in that mm. film and uh, and it was a big casting sort of thing to find her for that role and it was a big deal. And then she seemed to sort of disappear a bit after that. I think she was in a TV series that, that kind of fell apart halfway through its first season. Uh, and now she is the lead in Brett Haley's new film, which is called All Together Now. It's like a teen movie, again, sort of slightly musical focus. And she's the lead of it. And it comes to Netflix in like a month. 
Yay. at the end of August. So that's exciting. That is really good, actually. That's really good for her. I mean, look, I really like Brett Haley's work so far in the in the, on in the sense that Hearts Beat Loud was great. Uh, I, I could not be less excited about a Grease prequel, both of which words are words that I don't care for. Um, huh. But you know, oh, come on. no, but I mean, Grease is the most overrated musical ever made, and I say this oh. as a musical lover, but I just can't be having with it. Um, oh. Tell me more. Tell word. me more. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I'm just trusting that he makes something out of it because otherwise, there's not very much there. You know, God, Netflix is doing a lot this week. They've also got Denzel Washington and Julia Roberts in Leave the World Behind. Hmm. Yes, That's they do. a lot of talent in one film. Uh, it is. That's hope it's better than a Pelican Brief. It's a it's a kind of <laughs> thriller about um, a a couple who retreat to a, a little cabin in the woods type thing, and then they hear word that some sort of blackout has hit the big city, New York, where they where they lived, but they don't know. Do they, do they trust it? Has, is something major happening, or is it not? Who who's who who do you trust? Um, so yeah, I think this is going to be one of those smaller projects. We're going to see a lot of those. I mm-hmm. think as. Uh, as things um as time goes on in this time of pandemic and uh, hey listen edgar wright is piling up the projects isn't he he, he is. absolutely is so last night in soho is his next film is going to come out next year but he is attached to a whole bunch of stuff so he's attached to set my heart to five which is an adaptation of a forthcoming novel by simon stevenson uh, a couple weeks ago he was announced as a director of the chain which is the um much ballyhooed uh, best-selling thriller as well he's obviously got baby driver 2 on the go also um but he's also now attached himself limpet like to stage 13 which is an adaptation of a ghost story by simon rich and uh, it's about a the ghost of a famous silent uh, era actress who haunts a soundstage in in Hollywood for decades, and then one day she meets a director and they form a fast friendship. And uh, it sounds really cool and charming and, and mm. sweet and right up uh, Edgar Wright's alley. Uh, so excited about that! Excited to see which one he chooses next. Um, because Baby Driver Two is one he's writing himself, but the other three are all adaptations of other people's work, which is mm. which is kind of interesting. But yeah, there's got to be other bits and pieces as well because Comic Con uh, is happening pretty much as we speak. Uh, it is now Thursday when we're recording this, so even though we can't get to San Diego, God, I miss Comic Con. Uh, pictures mm. from old Comic Cons are coming up on my phone almost every single day at the moment, and it just makes me miss it. It's been three years since since we were there, and oh. it's a long, long time. Seven yes, years yeah, for me. Seven years. Wow, seven bloody years. hell. I've never seven been. Seven years. <laughs> I would love <laughs> to go one day. It's not all that, Ben. You, you, I wouldn't bother <laughs> if I were you. Uh, but yeah, I do, I do miss it, but it is happening right now, so bits and pieces of news are going to be coming out from that. A new Bill and Ted trailer uh, just hit literally as we were starting to record uh, and looks better than the last trailer, I will say that. Uh, Actually, you know, has a bit of plot and some jokes in it and uh, the effects look better. Um, So yes, we're going to keep an eye on that one. And Keanu Reeves is writing the comic books. There's going to be loads of news we'll be discussing next week that will come out from Comic-Con as well. But speaking of things that are happening that are worth your time, Sundance London usually is a big old thing. Lots of bells and whistles in London. Takes about a week, maybe even 10 days. Uh, This year, again, because of the pandemic, that is being condensed into just three days. It's running from the 7th of August to the 9th of August, and it's going to have all sorts of uh, online screenings and online Q&As and all sorts of incredible stuff for you guys to, to access. Now, a pass for all three days usually costs 20 quid. But the wonderful folk at Picture House have offered you, the Empire Podcast listeners, 
an incredible deal. So uh, you get a £5 discount if you use the offer code EMPIRE2020, which is nice of them. So if you go to picturehouses.com forward slash Sundance, let me just make sure I've got the right URL. Yes, picturehouses.com forward slash Sundance, and you should be able to buy your pass, then enter in Empire 2020. And if you have any problems, if the pass doesn't work, then uh, contact James on Twitter. That's at James C. Dyer and tell him all your problems as well. Use the hashtag. <laughs> any problems. Use the hashtag URL twat. Um, so... <laughs> Don't you, don't you diss me. Just because you're back on Twitter now does not mean you can give me aggravation. Okay, here's the thing. I am now, I am now verified on Instagram, so fuck you. I have a blue tick How on Instagram. I'm very excited about this. How the fuck did you get verified this. on Instagram? Well, Chris, when you run a podcast as successful as the Pilot TV podcast, these things just then tend they to don't happen. verify you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, How did you get also, verified? I am at James C. Dyer on Instagram. Come and follow me there and bask in the cobalt glory of my blue tick. Who did you who did you sleep with to get verified on on Instagram? All of Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. All right. Oh man. That sucks. Okay, so that is it for the movie news section. And now it is time for this week's guest. And uh, he is making a, a long-awaited return to the uh, Empire podcast. I believe he was last on to talk about his role in the motion picture, Logan, uh, which came out in 2017. Have you ever seen that, guys? Hmm, no, it's pretty it's on the Pilot TV podcast. He wasn't actually scratched that. In fact, no, he was on the spoiler special podcast that we did for Picard. He was, mm. which is technically speaking an Empire podcast spoiler technically special. Technically yes. an Empire podcast. In fact, not even technically, it is an Empire <laughs> podcast spoiler special. Uh, this is true. I completely forgot about that. Uh, so yes, forget my intro. Um, it's Patrick Stewart, Sir Patrick Stewart, the wonderful Sir Patrick Stewart, who last week turned 80 years old and looks and sounds better at 80 than I do at age. Um, it's really quite something. And uh, he has a new movie out. It's on Monday. It's out Monday. It's out on VOD. It's called Life with Music. I thought it was rather lovely. We'll be talking about it in the review section in a few minutes as well. But in it, he plays a, uh, a storied pianist who is suffering with stage fright and so uh we hooked up last week uh, sir patrick and i uh, not in that way but uh, over zoom not squadcast over zoom um and we discussed life of music we discussed stage fright we discussed a lot of his career uh we didn't discuss you'd be delighted to know star trek or x-men so if you're in it for that sort of stuff then i'm, I'm afraid your other interviews are awaiting you but uh this was a Really fascinating interview. Love to talk to him, and I hope you guys do enjoy. Oh, there's a lot of Shakespeare chat here as well, Helen. You'll be delighted to know. We discussed the sonnets because uh, Patrick is doing a sonnet a day on Instagram where he is, like James, verified. Uh, and uh, it is absolutely wonderful. One of the things that you know gives your day a little bit of joy, two or three minutes of joy every day. So we start off talking about that and then go all over the shop. Here we are, Patrick Stewart. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Emperor podcast in lockdown, of course, by the star of life with music, the great Sir Patrick Stewart. How are you, sir? I am well. Um, I'm grateful to say. It's good to see that you're, you're healthy, and it's good to see that you're doing well. And uh, I think the big question, before we really get into the film, is have you recorded Sonnet 87 today? No. Oh. Not okay. yet. We okay. mostly record after lunch or just before lunch. Um, today is a little special. For one thing, it's a sonnet that I love. And uh, I, I'm dedicating it to the daughter of a friend of mine. 
Oh, really? Oh man, that's lovely. That's lovely. I was I was reading it earlier on, and uh, I was reading it out loud to my wife, and going, "I don't do it half as well as Patrick Stewart will do it. Oh, <laughs> he's he's going to do this justice." There are no rules about uh, how you do sonnets. I mean, uh, I, I worked with the great John Barton for oh, j- just the two of us um, for about eight weeks, and all we did were sonnets and. No characterizations, no drama, just just the sonnets. And although he had so many uh, uh, feelings about how you could communicate sonnets, he he never insisted at all that there was only one way. And that was always the great thing about working with John and Trevor Nunn and Mm. and, uh, Terry Hams, that, that there were always... What they were looking for were alternatives, options. So you Mm. never get trapped into, there is one way of saying this line, and that's what I've got to do, just then repeat it, you know? Yes. um, There is is so much apparent spontaneity in what Shakespeare wrote that uh, just as you would with the most modern television script, Mm. you would approach it in the same way, except that, uh, with all respect to most television scripts, the, there were so many qualities and elements in one line of Shakespeare's verse that it made, it, it, it was unlikely that two actors would come up with exactly the same line reading because there were so many um, choices that you could make. And choices really is, cho- having choices is what makes the job very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. There was there was one the other day that you um, even as you, you during the recording of it, I can't remember which one it was, but it was a few days ago, and uh, you you even stopped and went back and reread a couple of lines because you didn't feel that you had you had nailed it. I mean, I I I do prep on each one. I I don't look ahead. I just I do the prep on the day that I'm going to record it, and some of them are quite complex. Um, just, but to me, the important thing is that I, two things really, that I get the structure of the verse right, or, you know, my own version of it, and, um, and the sense, what am I actually saying? Now, it's hard because words have changed their meaning. Uh, Yesterday, uh, right at the end of the recording, my wife, who is my lighting technician, camera operator, <laughs> costume designer, <laughs> location manager, everything she does. All yes. I do is to just read the sonnet. Uh, and she said, and I thought she'd signed off, but she said, there, there was one word, what does that word mean? And, um, oh, it was unexpected. So I had to look it up, of course, and, uh, uh, even though I, I had an idea of what it was. Yes. And, uh, I, I'm, we're, we're over halfway through the sonnets now, and I think I'm going to start uh, experimenting much more. Um, we've got about 60 more sonnets to go. Uh-huh. And already I've had one or two guests who have mm-hmm. read some, Jonathan Frakes and Ian McKellen and Gates McFadden. <clears throat> Uh, I am going to open it up a little bit more and invite others of my dear friends or 
you know, any, any. Patrick, I'm, I'm flattered. Is. I'm flattered. <laughs> I am available as a, as a, you as are? a, oh, by, by strange coincidence, my, my, my diary is free for the next two couple of weeks. <laughs> well, <laughs> I shall speak to Alana and we will get back to you. <laughs> I just, I, and, and maybe if, if, you know, if there's enough, if there's not too much to post, we might just do a little bit of work on them too. <laughs> so that instead of it just being a reassuring sonnet, although yes. some of them are pretty fierce, mm -hmm. um, it could be a little tiny, a mini masterclass. Does that make sense? That's tremendous. That, yeah. yeah, that would be, that'd be great. I, I um, downloaded uh, Ian a few years ago. I don't know if you saw this. He produced um, or was part of uh, a, a group that produced an iPad app that was about interpreting Shakespeare. And the, I think the idea was that they would do more, but I think they, 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 they stopped at one. They did The Tempest. I don't know if you saw this. It was incredible. I didn't was, see that. No. It was an educational app, and it was it was it was it was Ian and Judy Dench and all sorts of other oh, incredible wow. actors delivering the lines directly to the camera, and you could click on each line to to read um, different levels of meaning of what Shakespeare wrote. So there was a basic level, and it was an intermediate level, and an advanced level. It was absolutely incredible. So you could do something like that with with the with the sonnets. Well, I could not guarantee that it would be as clever and as smart as Ian and Judy did it. But, I mean, let me give you an example. I've cited this before, but I don't yeah. think ever to you. Um, uh, Ten years ago, 12 years ago, when I was getting ready to rehearse and play Macbeth, I, I, I literally ran into Ian in the street in the West End of London somewhere. And he said, uh, I, I hear you're going to play Mac Macbeth. And I said, yes, I am. Now, Ian is the most famous Macbeth of my generation. <laughs> Ian and Judy did the most brilliant production of it. And he said, I've got one little thought. Do you mind if I share it with you? And I said, oh, are you crazy? Of course not. Yeah, what is it? He said, well, one of the most famous lines in the play is tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. Yeah. And I said, yeah, yeah, right. It's, it's a great line. He said, the most important word in that sentence is and. And. And I, I said, I, I don't get it. He said, well, just listen. So he did it for me right there in the street in the West End. Tomorrow. And tomorrow, and tomorrow, uh, and it was brilliant and astonishing. And I, it, one of the very best examples of how you can bring something so personal to a text and not wreck the text, yes. or you know the poetry that's inherent in it. And uh, do you normally take light readings, Patrick, or or is it just from <laughs> just from Ian McKellen? Actually, yes, I do. Um, because th there is no one way, especially with Shakespeare. There are multitudes of interpretations you can make, which is why it is so exciting to perform. And, and you know, at the start of a play, the lights go down, the curtain goes up, and you're doing it for the first time. You've never done it before. You just happen to know all the lines and all the words. And then wait, you know, 
I know, a bit of a cliche, but wait for the spirit to move you. And yeah. the spirit can move you in all kinds of different and new directions. Ian and I, I, I caught up with an interview Ian and I did when we were doing Waiting for Godot a few years ago. And, uh, and the, the poor interviewer who had a list of questions never got a chance to ask the questions because we, the two of us just couldn't stop talking backwards and forwards and back. And we were talking about exactly this, this subject of how you, you put yourself authentically into the moment and something will happen. Mm -hmm. that, it was that which gave the incredible spontaneity to Ian and Dame Judy's Macbeth because it seemed as if they were living it. It was actually happening in front of your eyes. And that text had never been spoken before. And for me, that's when theater becomes really exciting. When you're sitting there and you're thinking, they've gone off text, they're just making it up. No, they haven't gone off text. They're rethinking it, re-experiencing it, you know. Yes. Well, all of this, in a, in a strange way, uh, is a lovely segue into Life of Music, because this is about interpretation as well. Your character, Henry, uh, is someone who every single night has to go on stage and interpret music of the masters. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes it cripples him. The fear of that cripples him. I mean, is, yes. you know, is that something that you've ever experienced as, as an actor, that, that, that sort of stage fright or screen fright? Is that something you can relate to? Oh, yes. Um, but not my experience. But I did witness at very, very close quarters an English actor who was, for me, in my, in my mid-twenties, my great inspiration. He was the man I wanted to be. Um, but he had uh, a breakdown. And we rehearsed this hugely, massively difficult play in which he had a huge leading role. And he knew it before everyone else. He was right on top of it. And then little by little, the cracks began to appear. And he literally fell apart. But he got as far as uh, previews on stage. But with each time that we did it, he was less able to pull it all together, less able and forgetting lines and drying and having prompts. It was, and there were a lot of people in this cast and we were all on stage most of the time. And the atmosphere was so filled with anxiety because he was also a beautiful, lovely individual. Mm. And uh, I was standing only uh, couple of feet away from him one night when he stopped and said, it's no good. And never spoke again. Closed his mouth. And it was, uh, it's making me emotional now because <laughs> only two audiences saw that performance. And I, for, for respect, I'm not mentioning who it was, but he was of course. one of England's most important leading actors. And um, so when this script was sent to me, it was one of the first things that I responded to. Uh, yes, I never had a breakdown on stage. Hmm. I've been scared occasionally. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and I've been nervous. Yes. But nerves are not necessarily a bad thing. 
if you can ride them, they provide all kinds of stimulus and energy. Um, in fact, I mentioned Waiting for Godot. <laughs> As the very first public performance that Ian and I gave of Waiting for Godot, um, it was at a theater in the, uh, in the Midlands in England, and we had never once got through the play without getting in a mess with the lines. One of us forgetting the lines or, or something going wrong or jumping from one scene to another, or one act to another act. And we had never got through it. And there was a packed house. And Ian used to make the first entrance. And then he would say one line and then I would go on. And I swear to you, I thought that the first thing I was going to do on stage was throw up. Oh I was God. I was so scared, so nervous. Um, but there's nothing like being in that situation with a dear friend and somebody who you can trust and depend on. Absolutely. <laughs> so, throughout the evening, we were helping one another get out of all kinds of scrapes. I mean, I don't know what the audience actually saw that night I, or how much Beckett there was in it, but we, we, <laughs> we got through it somehow. Um, so it, 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 I, I, I've heard, you know, the apparently strongest, toughest actors say you can hit moments when you don't know where to go or who you are or what you are or what the next line is at all. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but it, it was, it was the, uh, the psychological condition of um, our pianist that mm -hmm. um, fascinated me most. But there were other elements in it too. Um, I mean, and particularly when Katie Holmes got cast, I was so thrilled about that because she does wonderful work. Yes. And I, I, for those who are going to see the movie, maybe this wouldn't be helpful, but um, I don't play a note of music. <laughs> um, but um, I, I made sure that if I said yes to the offer, I would have months of preparation and classes and work, not to learn to play the piano, uh -huh. but to learn to look as if I was playing the piano. And it was one of the best periods in my life because I watched, I mean, there are videos of, and, and, or recordings of, of people going back to a hundred years and, and to watch so many, and especially if you could find the same piece and then watch different uh, people playing exactly the yes. same piece of music was extraordinary. And then I worked with, um, I worked with three different pianists, um, one here in Los Angeles, one in New York, and, um, and one in, in, um, in um, Montreal, where we, mm -hmm. we filmed the, the piece. Mm -hmm. uh, but fortunately, there, there, were, uh, uh, there were two world-class pianists, one of whom I've worked with quite a lot and I adore, Emmanuel Axe. He and I have, we have a kind of party piece that we do from time to time. Unfortunately, it's a 50-minute long party piece, so <laughs> you don't get asked for it very often. And, and the brilliant uh, John Lill, who is an extraordinary English pianist. And yes. I went to concerts and I watched them and I talked to them and 
and little by little, um, the the connection with the keyboard became stronger and stronger, and I, I, I could feel it. And it was, you know, I've always, always loved um, classical music, particularly piano music. Mm. And so to be sitting on a concert platform behind the Steinway concert grand <laughs> with the music playing on loudspeakers, and all I had to do was to become part of the music and play it. I mean, that's as close as I will ever get. But it was, uh, it, it, it made for a wonderful experience all in all. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. How do you, when you are somebody's superbly gifted, superbly talented, and then a crisis hits your yeah. life, uh, how do you deal with that? How do you handle that, the overwhelming mm. turmoil of, of disaster that comes with some experiences? And so um, I loved every moment yeah. of, uh, of this. But um, it, it strikes me, Patrick, I mean, you, you turned 80 a week ago. Happy belated birthday. Um, Thank you. It strikes me as well that, you know, recently the likes of Picard and, and this movie, and you, you've announced recently that you're writing a memoir. I don't know whether it's an, a natural byproduct of reaching 80, that you begin to look backwards. But it strikes me that there's a theme that's running through a lot of your work at the moment. Is that, is that deliberate or accidental? Uh, it's more accidental than deliberate, I think. I had, for a long time, I had not believed that I was approaching 80. Um, that Some mistake had been made somewhere and it couldn't possibly <laughs> be 80. But I'll tell you one thing I've learned, this is a warning for you for the future, that it's much easier to be 80 than to become 80. I'm, I'm so glad that, I mean, I had a wonderful birthday. First privately with my wife over lunch and then with dear friends in, in the early evening, uh, all of us uh, socially distanced in my back garden. Uh, but uh, now that I am 80, I've forgotten about it. it it's, you know, it's, unless someone mentions it unexpectedly and <laughs> sorry uh, sorry life has not changed that is good because whenever whenever i hit 40 a, a couple of years ago i didn't i didn't have the full-blown cliched meltdown i didn't have an affair with my secretary or, or anything like that but i did have a wobble if i'm, if I'm completely honest really? yeah i had i had a bit of a wobble a bit of an existential what have i done with my life kind of really? <laughs> kind of moment yeah um did you have something like that when you hit well, never mind 80 but but 40 for example well, uh, unfortunately, my 40th and my 50th birthday were horrendous days. Oh, uh, no. I, I'll tell you a little about, as you mentioned, your 40th. <laughs> On my 40th birthday, I was filming in Ireland. Mm -hmm. uh, John Boorman, brilliant, brilliant director, was directing a film called Excalibur. Yes. At, uh, at the Arthurian legend. Mm -hmm. And we wore armor, full armor, for long periods of that film. And the call was always early because it took a long time for everybody to get dressed, to get into armor. Um, and once we'd got it on, we were under strict instructions not to remove any of it. 
Mm-hmm. So we wore it for the whole day. I think we might have been allowed to take something around our necks off at lunchtime, something like that. But you couldn't take it off because then it would take so much time to put it back on again. And I was ready to go, ready to shoot by 7.30 in the morning. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, one of the assistants came to me and said, Patrick, I'm really sorry, but we're not going to get to you. So, you know, you can, you can change now and, and go home. And I had sat there for all these hours in this. In this and I, I've been looking forward to being on camera on my 40th birthday. So mm-hmm. I, I went and found uh, Mr. Borman, the director, and I, I explained, look, it's my 40th birthday. Can't you find a little moment for me to be in? And he said, no, I can't, no, that wouldn't work. I said, well, well, let me just be a background character. You know, I'll wait a bit. And he said, no, 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 we can't take that risk. No, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm really sorry, Patrick, but that's it. So I got in the car and I drove back to the hotel. We were in Tipperary. And uh, I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out. I'm going to have a big run. I'm going to do several miles because I used to do a lot of that kind of exercising. Mm. So I, I got out of the hotel and I'm thumping along one of these narrow uh, Tipperary roads and uh, I see this big truck coming down and it's taking up a lot of the road and I think, oh, it's going to slow down or move to one side. Oh, no, it's not. And I had to literally leap into the ditch on the side of the road. Oh, my God. I very badly twisted my ankle, really badly. So I came limping back to the hotel, uh, so fed up. And, and there I, I saw one of the other cast members who was a dear friend. And I said, look, would you have dinner with me tonight? Just the two of us, because we get on so well. And, and, and it's my birthday. And, you know, I'd like to celebrate. Well, there was another actor in the film who was drinking very heavily. Uh-huh. And we... Uh, were in the restaurant, the two of us, and he was in the bar, which adjoined the restaurant. And suddenly we heard all this yelling and shouting. And then somebody screamed. And one of the other actors came backwards out of the bar door, having been hit in the face, and fell over a a dinner table where there was a family of 12 all having a celebration. And he crashed down onto the table. Uh, And then I spent the rest of the evening with my friend trying to calm everything down every now. So that was my 40th birthday. <laughs> so however bad yours was, I don't think it can equal that. <laughs> no, no, you win. You absolutely win. And I believe me, I'm not even going to begin to ask you about your 50th because it seems the 40th was bad enough. <laughs> In its way, it was worse because it was about family problems. Oh, no. And, yeah. and uh, it all went... Uh, Bottoms up, I'm afraid. Oh, but man. my 60th was good. My 70th was okay. And my 80th was beautiful. So <laughs> yeah, something for you to look forward to. You announced recently that you are writing your memoir. Uh, is that, have you begun the process? And how's it going? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm uh, actually 84 pages into it. Um, and uh, I have just, well, a few days ago, um, I came to a, a moment in, in my story, my, my life, when my life was literally about to change. Um, 
at the start of one day, I had one life. At the end of that day, I had a totally different life. And um, I thought, this is the moment now to pause. And, and my agent and, and, and the publishers, they were curious to know how it was going. So I said, what if I just stop now for a while and send you these 80-odd pages? And, and if, it's, if it's, you know, crap, you can just say <laughs> it's crap. And yeah, I'll, I'll just finish it and give it to my grandchildren. Um, but they, they liked it. So uh, the, actually this afternoon, I'm, I'm picking up the story where I left it and I'm really looking forward to it. I haven't written before like this. I, I, mm. it's, it's not something that, that I had an impulse to do, but I felt that there was a need for this. And, you know, the coronavirus, uh, you know, I've been sitting here in this room now for four months nearly. Mm. And uh, I don't know what I would have done if I'd not had the memoir to work on because it, it, it grounded me, it centered me, it, it put me back. Because I was, I, you know, I've, I've got to the age of 17 in the story why I am now. So okay. I have been writing about the first years of my life and I've enjoyed every moment of it. Mm. It's, it's actually better than acting. Because I sit here where I'm sitting now and I look at the screen and I read the last two paragraphs I wrote the day before or something. And, and then there's, those two paragraphs just gently suck me back into the past. And there I am. And wham, I can just right away. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it is, writing this has become a kind of therapy. Yes. Because it's changing how I feel felt about my growing up and my childhood and my parents and my brothers mm. and so forth and things that happened to me. Um, uh, so whether it ever gets published or not, uh, I'm, I'm very glad I was asked to do it. I'm, I'm very glad you're doing it. I, I can't wait to read it. It's, uh, it's going to be fantastic. And of course, there's multiple moments in your life where you're where you, your life changed irrevocably. And it's interesting that you, you know, you're talking about the, the moment at 17, presumably the moment when you started to pursue acting. Is that, is that is the moment you're talking about? It was, the, it was the day that I left my home in the north of England, our little council house that we lived in, and I got a train to Bristol to start my first year at the Bristol Olympic Theatre School. And from the moment that I got to Bristol and got off the train, my life was different. <laughs> and um, uh, so that's where I am. That's, that's, what I, that's where I will be picking the story up this afternoon. Are you writing with the audiobook in mind? Because I cannot wait to hear that. No, I'm not. But, you know, my contract requires me to record an audio book. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> There's one way in which I'm looking forward to the audiobook. Mm -hmm. um, when, when I was young, I, I spoke with an accent, uh, a North Country accent, but more than an accent, I spoke dialect. So it wasn't just the sounds I made, we used different words. I mean, if you can believe it, even back in the 1940s, 1950s, we, where I grew up, we said thee and thou. 
That was <laughs> yes. a part of everyday language. Yes. Because I remember, ha-ha, to my cost, that you were never allowed to say thee to my father, because he would just wallop you if you did. Oh, wow. That yeah. was an insult. Um, and then there are other dialect things. I, I, an instance I always give is that if, when I was going to a friend's house to see if he wanted to come out to play or something, do something, when he came to the door, I would say, Atalekanat. Atalekanat. I beg your pardon? Atta. Uh-huh. Art thou. Uh-huh. Lakin, which is a word at least 500 years old. It means playing. Wow. And actors back in the, certainly in the early, in the mid 16th century onwards, were known as Lakers. Uh, so at a lakin, are you playing at, uh, in other words, are you coming out to play at a lake and at? So I had to learn another language and Amazing. certainly learn to speak what in those days was called RP, received pronunciation, mm -hmm. which meant that you talked like a newscaster on the BBC. <laughs> they don't anymore now. Thank my Lord. We now have people from all over the United Kingdom, all over the Commonwealth, who, yes. who are um, newsreaders on, on the BBC. Um, but I so much enjoy using this language and using the accent at times. And because I have conversations, um, and I, I tried to write the dialect on the page into the words, but it's very difficult. Yes. Um, but that will be fun when we come to do the audio. I'm looking forward to being a Yorkshireman again. Although <laughs> I have to say my family who still live in Yorkshire, they tell me that my Yorkshire accent is now dreadful. <laughs> it sounds completely artificial. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Uh, or, of course, Ian McKellen is also an option if you wanted to go down that route, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's going to be absolutely fantastic. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, sir. And, uh, well, and best you. luck with everything. Thank you so much. I have enjoyed it very much indeed. Okay, so that was Patrick Stewart. And now let's start the reviews section by talking about the movie in which he's in, uh, which James and Helen tell me isn't on IMDb, but it's a real movie because I've seen it. <laughs> you guys have seen it. I think I saw it. We did see yeah, it, right? It may have been a dream. <laughs> Unless Patrick Stewart has access to Inception technology, then I don't know what's going I on. I mean, Elon Musk was said to be developing it this week, so maybe, I guess. But, uh, oh, wow. but yes. So Patrick Stewart in this plays um, Sir Henry, just call me Henry Cole, um, who is- I, I know why it's not on IMDb. What's that? Different name. It's called Coda on his- IMDb page. I didn't even see that on his page. Yep, there it is. Oh, yeah, it's a few ceilings down. Yep. Good. All right, fine. It's a few down because it was a couple of years Coda. ago. Coda. So it's Coda. called Coda elsewhere. It, well, whether it's been officially released as Coda anywhere, but here it is now called Life with Music. So anyway, let's get on with the show. Life with Music slash Coda. Helen, tell us about it. Right, so this stars obviously Patrick Stewart as uh, Sir Henry, please call me Henry Cole, um, who is a <laughs> concert pianist. Um, he's been away from performance, maybe not recording, but certainly performance for 15 years um, and is still super rich looking as far as I could tell. Um, but his manager, Paul uh, Giancarlo Esposito, is thrilled to have him back on the stage. Uh, he is less thrilled to be the, he, there. He's suffering kind of stage fright for the first time, really struggling to, um, to, to, to perform. No 
pun intended. Um, he is he's just clearly not happy uh, where he is. He's he's lost some of his old um, facility with with performance, and it gradually becomes clear that he suffered a loss years ago, which is why he stepped back from performing when he did. And and he's maybe not quite as over it as he thought he was, and he's maybe struggling when he gets back. Um, into this mix comes Katie Holmes, New Yorker journalist uh, Helen Morrison, who's a, a former pianist herself and is uh, trying to interview him for a piece. And it's one of those films where a female journalist uh, strikes up a possibly inappropriate romantic or emotional at any rate relationship with her subject and gets completely distracted from the job she's supposed to be doing. But anyway, we'll leave that aside. Um, (laughs) This is a film by Claude Lalonde um, and it does... It's very good in places, I think. It's really, really good any time it's on Patrick Stewart because I think he's absolutely fantastic in this film. I think especially at the beginning, there are moments where the dialogue could not be less like real things people say to each other. They, it doesn't feel like any exchange of sentences that anyone has ever actually exchanged in the world, but it kind of works within the slightly heightened, rarefied world of the people in the movie, perhaps. Um, my bigger problem was that Helen was not much of a character at all, and I didn't buy her for a second. Even besides, you know, any sort of lack of professionalism in terms of her relationship with with Henry, it just there's nothing there. There's no there there, d- despite Katie Holmes' best efforts, and I didn't quite buy her. I still enjoyed the movie because I think it's very much Patrick Stewart's movie and I think he's so good in every single scene. Obviously, as you'd expect from a movie about a classical pianist, the music is also fantastic. It's it's mostly um, classical needle drops, can I say that? Uh, classical <laughs> needle drops throughout, but they're well chosen and they're incredible music. I just thought that, yeah, that relationship was the bit that let it down because there is only one person in it and it's him. Yeah, I know what you mean about Katie Holmes' character. She she feels like she's sort of a mood that wafts in and out of this yeah. film to affect uh, Patrick. And watching this, I, I was picturing your face <laughs> a little bit. Um, this 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 is a funny one, isn't it? Because like the plot is very just oh, it's barely uh, disposable. Yeah. It's barely yeah, it is barely there is barely a plot here. But it's, I guess that's not what it is. It is all about him. Mm. And you know, and I have a thing. I love face acting on on certain actors, and I love I love face acting on few people as much as I love yeah. it on Patrick Stewart. And he does some pretty magnificent <laughs> face acting in this. Um, and and indeed some finger acting, though there is are not in fact his fingers. But uh, but yeah, I, I there's something about this. And like you could say, look, do we really need to see another meditation on grief? And the answer to that is surely no. But it's really quite sweet and touching. Yeah. And he's so He's so sort of fragile and hurt. And there's there's a particular scene in this again where something just breaks him, something quite simple breaks him. And it's just this sort of this great love of his life, as you find out, which is, you know, uh, which is is dealing with this loss. uh, And it's affected the core of his being, his ability to play, which is what defines him as a person. And uh, I thought this was a really, really sweet movie and weirdly exactly what I needed at that particular point uh, watching it. I was like, oh, this is is lovely. Mm. Um, It's it's a big shout out actually to the cinematographer, uh, 
Guy Dufaux, because this is a beautiful looking mm. film. Um, you know, there's there's sections all around Europe, and I, I don't know what is it. Is it Germany, Helen? Is it Austrian bases? Like it? It's Switzerland, yeah. So it's uh, somewhere Alpy, uh, <laughs> but it's uh, <laughs> it's it really does. It's some beautiful, beautiful shots in mm. this, and the soundtrack mm. is is glorious. There's lots of Schumann and, and Schubert and Rachmaninoff in there. So you, I mean, you would imagine for a film about a pianist that the uh, no Randy Newman the piano playing it would be good. There's no Randy Newman in that. I'm sorry to say, big um, shock. Yeah, it sounds great. It looks great. Patrick Stewart is great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it doesn't really have a story, but yeah, I, I think this is good. I liked it. I, I, I like realise I've made an error in asking James to review a Patrick Stewart movie. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. No, I mean, I'm, well, I mean, okay, I'm also of the same Star Trek The Next Generation generation, as it were, um, so I may also be partial to him, but I, I do think objectively he's great in this movie. Yeah. Like, no argument there. It's only the stuff around him I have any quibble with. Yeah, um, and even then, as James says, it looks incredible and and sounds good. Yeah. So it is, is as you say, it's like the first of two films we're reviewing this week about wildly unprofessional journalists. <laughs> but uh, it's just you know, oh, yeah. it's uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, no, that's a very, very good point. Uh, but is she unprofessional, or is she doing what she needs to get done to get the story? Uh, the, Ew, the, the main problem. That's the main, worse. No, no, I don't <laughs> mean in that way. I don't mean in that way. But she's like, she helps, she helps heal him, doesn't she? Manic pixie dream journalist. Yeah. My main problem with the Katie Holmes character is that I was just jealous. I was jealous of the mm. access. I was, you know, like we're reduced, uh, yeah. we're reduced the moment to 15 to 20 minute uh, interviews over a squad cast <laughs> uh, with people. And she was just blithely wandering into his hotel room and spending days with him and like having all sorts of, you know, bike rides and picnics and dinners. And it's just like, oh God, oh, yeah, just stop it. I know that that did seem unfair, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, did she get to see Richard Armitage reading The Hobbit in this trailer? No, she didn't. Chris Hewitt won, Katie Holmes nil. <laughs> Take that, Katie Holmes and the so-called New Yorker, if any, that even exists. Anyway, I really liked this film. I thought he was tremendous. Uh, it has one of my favourite shots of the year, weirdly enough, because it's otherwise quite an intimate drama. But about 20 minutes from the end, there's a shot where you just go, what the <laughs> Where did that come from? It's just a wild shot of incredible technical ambition just thrown in out of nowhere. It's like, okay, that's <laughs> yeah. bizarre, but um, yeah, I'm on board with it. Um, and it's very much the Patrick Stewart show. Mm. Um Although Would not watch. as cool as that sounds. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, we don't have a review of this on the Empire website yet. So um, we give it anywhere between one to five stars. Uh, James will be back next week to increase the star rating. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Got, I'm saying up, three. I'm saying three. Uh, yeah, All you three held of three them fingers. for Patrick Stewart. Yeah. <laughs> <Three>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some cracking uh, piano playing going on here as well, though. So I, I, I really like this film, guys. I thought I, I would go four. Jimbo, what about you? Uh, I'd probably give it a three for the kind of general lack of story, but kind of as a mood and character piece, I'm probably somewhere between the two. I, like I said, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was very, very sweet, and I thought he was great. Mm. Uh, I think if they'd put a little bit more sort of thought into the Helen character, not you, Helen, the other Thanks. Helen, uh, the Helen character, then it would have been, I think, a definite form. No, I, I, the more I think about it, I think the Katie Holmes character is absolutely my favourite journalist called Helen. I, I think <laughs> she nailed that aspect. Why? Well, I don't understand. Uh, so three slash four stars then for Life with Music slash Coda. And next up, speaking of character pieces that don't really have a lot of plot, but which are nevertheless delightful, spoiler, uh, it is St. Francis. Benjamin and his big floppy quiff. 
Yes, this is a film uh, starring and written by Kelly O'Sullivan, who uh, plays Bridget. She is a woman who is 34, living a sort of... uh, typical city life she is kind of unsure of what she's doing she's feeling kind of directionless and uh she's working as a waitress not in a cocktail bar (laughs) (laughs) and uh she ends up being the nanny to this six-year-old kid called francis for a summer she kind of doesn't really like kids and she doesn't really vibe massively with francis when she first meets her Mm. and in the background of all of this she's kind of seeing a guy on and off she gets pregnant and decides to have an abortion and that is a sort of major part of the film but also one of the most commendable things about it is that it's just also something that is happening in relation to everything else um so in her sort of becoming the nanny to the six-year-old kid for a summer who this kid is sort of she's really kind of sweet and charming but also a complete nightmare and a little bit out of control um and they sort of i don't know learn things from each other over the course of the summer which sounds super cheesy and i think there is a version of this film that exists that is a much cheesier version um but this has a real refreshing frank emotional honesty to it um they the characters are really they are flawed and they have a lot to learn from each other i think that's one of the things that makes it so good is that at at each point in the film there will be a character who you'll think oh my god why are you doing that why are you acting this way and they sort of all learn a lot from each other in the way that they act especially um bridget and francis kelly o'sullivan is great in this and like i said she wrote it and she's so funny it's really peppered with a lot of really chuckleable lines and observations she's kind of like oh this is such a basic sort of comparison but you know the way someone like greta gerwig the way that she can say something in such a throwaway way that it makes you laugh it's the delivery it's the tone of the whole thing um she has her own distinct style but it has that feel to it of oh Mm -hmm. this person who has written this and knows this character inside out and knows how to play all those tiny moments that make you laugh which is really really great and it deals super head-on and very frankly and very matter-of-factly with things like abortion and periods and postnatal depression and all sorts of kind of weighty stuff and it deals with those things with the necessary weight that they require without the film itself feeling weighty. It has a generally, there are darker moments in it, but it has a generally pretty heartwarming tone, especially towards the end of it. And you get some kind of nice resolution um, in a way that feels really earned. It doesn't feel like sort of cheap resolution. Um, you're going to come out of this feeling pretty good and feeling like you've seen something kind of special and a really great arrival for this really exciting new voice um so she wrote it and it's directed by alex thompson it's his directorial debut he has Mm -hmm. a very sort of classic american indie film style it's kind of it's all about the characters and the dialogue and the mood and the atmosphere and the conversations that these characters are having with each other and without really getting in the way and that is exactly what this film needs so it's really funny it's full of great performances and it's funny made me laugh a lot so mm-hmm. uh, big recommend for saint francis yeah same here a lot to add to that uh except kelly o'sullivan uh should mention as well that, that she partly draws upon her own experiences uh, in real life uh, and alex thompson is her partner also in real life so uh you know they, they show tremendous promise i think as a uh directing writing team going forward uh also um and uh, yeah, I thought she, I thought she was absolutely tremendous. Uh, and also, all the way through, I was going, she really looks like someone. 
she really looks like someone, but I can't quite place it. And then it hit me, Kate McKinnon. So she looks a lot like Kate McKinnon. So the two of them should play sisters in something. Uh, get get working on it right now. High concept comedy. I thought this was absolutely tremendous, guys. Um, we gave it four stars and I'm bang on board with that. Last this week, we're going to move on to How to Build a Girl, which is based on the semi-autobiographical novel by Katlyn Moran. Jimbo, you have titled yourself How to Build a Bellend this week. Well, you know, I like to be on brand. Um, <laughs> yes, this is the new film by Koki Gedroich, uh, sister of Mel. Uh, and uh, this is, as you say, based sort of kind of loosely on Katlyn Moran's own life. And it stars uh, Beanie Feldstein in her first kind of main lead role after Booksmart uh, as Johanna, set in 1990s Wolverhampton. She goes up on a council estate with her many brothers and sisters and dreams of getting out, getting away, getting all the way to the FBI. <laughs> no, that is not, in fact, the plot of this film. What she actually wants to be is a journalist. She wants to write... Dreams and give you the FBI. DME, um, right? <laughs> So she wants to be a writer, and so she manages to get the attention of a music magazine down in busy London, a music magazine called D&ME. You see what they did there? It's very clever. Um, so she manages to get her job there, writing a piece, and eventually strays away, realises that she's not going to hack it at sort of writing about things she loves, realises she's going to have to stop writing about things she hates. So she adopts an evil persona of Dolly Wilde, uh, dyes her hair, adopts a interesting sort of outfit uh, and begins sort of writing takedown pieces for this for this magazine and it's kind of it's a sort of charting her kind of it's not even a rise and fall it's more of like a descent into evil uh because she becomes an unrepentant bellend and i think this was what i struggled with about <laughs> this it's is intentional James so yeah it is but this is an intentional thing so there is a she's very self-aware in this towards the end like she realizes what she's become uh like she becomes absolutely insufferable uh as this character that she adopts this Dolly Wilde character. Uh, and she comes from, as I say, this council state in Wolverhampton. She puts on this sort of wolves accent, which I think she does a pretty good job of generally. It is a quite a difficult accent now. It does wobble at times, I think mainly in the voiceover, uh, but I think she does a pretty good job with that. And you know, her dad's Paddy Considine, her mother's Sarah Soleimani. And, uh, but she goes down, she meets this, this uh, editorial team. Uh, Frank Delane is on there. Uh, and this editorial team is like no magazine I've ever worked for. They have issue meetings in a hot tub. And I've got to be honest, Chris, we should do more of that at Empire. But um, I've tried. I, I, have, no? I, have, I have asked. I have often tried to insist, but, uh, <laughs> but no one wants to do it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I mean, I know this is 90s magazine journalism, but still. Uh, and she ends up sort of uh, interviewing uh, a songwriter played by Alfie Allen. And it's basically, it, it is her career kind of as it evolves and as she realises and as she finds herself and this profession. I think where I struggle with this, I, I like Callum Moran's writing a lot. I've read her book, How to Be a Woman. I've never read How to Build a Girl, the novel. Um, I think the problem with this is twofold. I think uh, Moran's sort of wit doesn't come through that strongly. So this is, she adapted this, she adapted her book, uh, so she wrote the screenplay for this, but it feels like a lot of her wit isn't in there. Equally, Beanie Feldstein, while she is fantastic in this, and she really is, she puts on a great performance, I think the fact that she plays a character who is not at all easy to like during this film really means that it kind of loses you. Like Most of the characters in here, other than Soleimani and, and, and Considine and, uh, and her brother played by Laurie Kiniston are just, uh, they're all just a bunch of bellends. And I struggle with this. I struggled liking them. I struggled to stay with them. I was quite bored. I wanted to punch a great many people in this film. Um, and so it didn't really do it for me. I will say it has an ex 
extraordinary roster of cameos in it, mm. most of whom appear on her bedroom wall. Uh, but there's some 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 great mm. cameos in here, and it's you know it's it's well made, it's well acted, but very punchable. Did you guys feel yeah. this? Was there? A, did you feel the punchability? Oh God, yes, I did. I I my thing I think is that for a story that is quite unusual, uh, it actually just ends up hitting exactly the beats at exactly the times you expect it to do of any sort mm. of uh, redemption story. It's so predictable throughout. You, we were sitting, my sister and I watched it together and we're sitting here cringing going, oh God, she's going she's gonna to screw up at this point. Oh no, she's someone's going to screw her over at this point. And it all happened exactly as we predicted every single moment. And I, I just felt like she'd actually sort of, you know, flattened her own work in trying to adapt it to the screen and trying to hit certain beats. And mm. it left certain scenes, I think, and certain character moments completely lacking, which is why you don't like Johanna as much as you should. Because, you know, she goes from, you know, a zero to her, certainly her own hero in her own mind. But she also goes from, you know, basically scared to talk to any boys to, and then I had loads of sex and became really good at it. And I fully applaud the film for not making a big deal of losing your virginity or something because fine, but there's something in between that. There's some moment of gaining confidence in yourself. Mm. There is something that just wasn't on screen. And if the only way that you're kind of showing your character's inner life is in talking to people on her wall, which I think is what they were going for, that didn't work always. It didn't give you enough insight into what was going on in her head, apart from these incredibly telegraphed plot points. Instead of being about the character, it was about what she was going to do all the time. And it just felt a little bit lacking in that regard. And I felt like also characters just got kind of lost along the way. Paddy Considine, in particular, as her dad, just kind of got left to one side at one point and the film seemed to forget that he was there, which is very nearly unforgivable when you have a character played by Paddy Constantine, to be perfectly honest. Mm. Um, that's even aside from the portrayal of journalism. I mean, I know it was the 90s and there was a bit more money around, but I mean, there was an editor in this film that has a six pack. Don't be ridiculous. Well, Helen, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, <laughs> a six pack of beer? <laughs> no, the other kind. <laughs> They're all very obnoxious in this. Like mm. the other, and it's very smug. Like when it reads out sort of sections of her writing, and you see all these people sort of wowing over how amazing it is, and it's just like that's quite a bold and very obnoxious thing to do. And as a character, she comes across that way. She's so the way she talks to her brother, the way she kind mm. of carries her around. Like she really is quite hateful a lot of the way through this. And yeah, that's that's difficult. Yeah. I mean, there were yeah, good moments of performance, but I just felt like, and she's another really, really deeply unprofessional journalist um, of the <laughs> female persuasion, which also is, yeah. is a genuine problem in films. Like it is a genuine thing. Find me a female journalist who never sleeps with, falls in love with, or otherwise act inappropriately with the person she's interviewing. Please. I want to see that. I swear I've managed it. I promise. Mostly. Like 99% of the time. Who have you slept with? <laughs> what famous not- people have you slept with, Helen? <laughs> like so many, Chris, but never on the job. <laughs> Confessions of a film journalist. <laughs> that's what we want to see. I'm sure there's been... Okay, I'm going to... That's. Oh, there's got to be, right? There's got to have been. There's got to have been a female journalist. His Girl Friday. Rosalind Russell. Well, she didn't sleep with the story, but she definitely slept with her boss. Yeah, but he's 
Cary Grant for I mean, yeah, sake. that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> so. What about Halle Berry and Cloud Atlas, Ben? She does not sleep with anyone to get yes. that story. Uh, no, she, but she does nearly get murdered because she Shit. gets too close to the truth. I mean, I feel like there should be a middle ground. Back to how to build a girl. Um, I, I liked the cameos as well. I thought Mike Helen is really well directed. There's a moment where she goes to her first concert, her first uh, to, to review it. And it's Manic Manics. Street Preachers. Hmm. Yeah, it's early Manics, you know, back in the days when they were loud. And, um, and it's a really good evocation of what it's like to be drawn in by a gig. Mm. It actually feels like a proper gig, you know, like so many of these these you know gigs and movies feel like really staged and fake. Uh but this didn't. Um but yes, this this movie has a, pre- a preponderance of bell ends and for that reason I didn't quite get on board with it. But uh nevertheless, three stars for how to build a girl. That sounded like a review on the uh, Apple podcasts of this podcast. <laughs> A preponderance, preponderance of balance, of balance. <laughs> three stars. Yeah, yeah. preponderance of balance. Well, three stars. Yeah, precisely. And uh, yeah, it's like it's on watching the uh, the music uh, magazine dickheads in this movie. It's a bit like that uh, Mitchell and Webb sketch about the Nazis. You know, <laughs> you see, you go, are we the baddies? It's like yeah, we're not like that, are we? Please tell me we're not like that. There's no I mean, hot tops. I don't know. That was that time on the rooftop when we were throwing DVDs and shooting them with a shotgun. So, <laughs> is there a scene where they all go to Morrison's and buy ten bags of squashies and bring them back to the office? <laughs> yes, that's the thing about Empire. It's like the rock and roll excess has passed us by. Someone that's that's our rock and roll excess. But the white stuff is sugar. <laughs> yeah, I get my high from um, getting Ben to stand by a bin, open the bin, and then I will throw an empty coke bottle into the bin yeah, from, tw- yeah. from twenty feet away. That's how I get my high. No, no, but, no, um, no. You will throw an empty Coke bottle at a bin from about 20 <laughs> feet away. It will not go it's on, in said bin. It's on film. Yeah, I nail it every single times. time. Every single time I uh-huh. nail it first time. Uh-huh. Uh, I did that the other right, day, actually. I got, I got followed to stand by a bin whilst I threw a, a banana peel into the bin from 15 feet away, God. and I nailed it first time. And she was amazed, because in eight years of marriage, I have never got it in first time. Uh, right, anyway, three stars. Good Lord. <laughs> what? There's a little more information than we needed, Chris. I mean, banana peel into the bin. What did you... Th- Oh, I can see how that could be misconstrued. You're not going to fall okay. for the banana in the tailpipe. <laughs> Three stars in. <laughs> Three stars in. I think we've killed Helen. Three stars in for how to build a girl. And that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. <laughs> the last Empire Podcast, probably. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun, where we'll be joined by the future Terry White, Gemma Arterton, star of Summerland. That's exciting, isn't it? Well, hey. There you go. That's exciting. Everyone's excited about that. And some Empire uh, Podcast-related special news as well uh, coming your way. So if you're a subscriber to our spoiler specials, you've got a couple of recent ones for you to listen to. Chance Tehelski uh, forming a huge part of our John Wick spoiler special, which is up there right now. It's very, very exciting. And Gareth Evans talking about the Gangs of London fifth episode, which is absolutely extraordinary piece of action filmmaking. Uh, and that is up there as well. And next week, we're going to be recording and then putting up our Hamilton spoiler special, which is just Team Empire. It is just Team Empire. No Linny Manny, sadly, but it's just us talking about Hamilton for a good couple of hours. So if that sounds like your bag, then do subscribe to the Sporter Specials. Go to my pinned tweet at Chris Hewitt to find out 
how you do that. And coming up over the next couple of weeks, we have some cracking retro spoiler specials, including Edgar Wright talking about Scott Pilgrim versus the world and some other ones that I don't want to announce just yet until they're in the bag. But it's very, very exciting stuff. But listen, until we meet again, until then, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from How to Build a Bell End, James Dyer. Bye, Chris. It's goodbye from St. Ben. Goodbye. Ben Travis. Oh, I was too soon. Sorry. Goodbye. That soon. never happens. I promise that <laughs> never happens. <laughs> you jumped a gun. It's my first time. It's my first time doing this on a podcast. Uh, it's goodbye from St. Ben. Ben Travis, goodbye. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from, I was looking at your name, mm. Helen, and I realised that we didn't talk about this in we the news section. We didn't talk about this news story at all, no. Uh, because it's just a rumour at rumor. the moment. Yeah. Uh, so Helen's name this week on Squadcast is Lando Hara. Lando, why Lando? And of course, it's because rumour this week is that Donald Glover is going to be playing Lando Calrissian once again in a Disney Plus show. It's just a rumour at this point. If something solidifies, we'll talk about it on the podcast. Yeah, but, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, if it happens, we're excited. Um, and maybe this is a step closer to ending the internet campaign to make a solo two, um, which, you know, if it happens, it happens. Free uh, solo. But there you go. <laughs> Free solo is <laughs> yes. good. Yes, indeed. Free solo. That'll be the third one. Um, so it is goodbye from Lando O'Hara, Helen O'Hara. Totally. And it's goodbye from me, Jurgen Norbert Klopp, and that is it from us. And uh, you know what, guys, uh, while we're speaking about music journalists, uh, this pod is dedicated to the fine folk at our sister publication, Q, which came to the end of its 34-year run this week mm. and has made us all very, very, very sad uh, because, quite simply, without Q, there would be no empire. That yep. is absolute fact. It is really that simple. And we're so, so sorry to hear, but what happened to Q... And we hope and trust that Ted Kessler and Chris Catchpole and all the, the wonderful writing and production staff on the magazine land on their feet and move on to bigger and better things down the line. So this podcast is for you guys. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>